There's certain things that a man should expect when he chooses the path of an outlaw. It ain't a glamorous life, not by a long shot. Cold, lonely camps, constantly on the run, constantly looking over your shoulder, not ever really being able to trust anyone. And always in the back of your mind is that realization there's no easy way out. This life only ends in one of two ways, behind bars or at the end of a rope, or just shot down like a dog. But that's life on the hoot owl trail. You accept it. You are what you are, and it is what it is. But what nobody ever tells you is what happens after, especially if a couple of frontier sawbones get a hold of your body. They say if you really want to understand where a person is coming from, you need to walk a mile in their shoes. But what if those shoes are made from human skin and adorned with nipples? Yes, nipples. Join me today as we delve into the life and afterlife of Wyoming outlaw Big Nose George. My name's Josh, and this is the Wild West Extravaganza. George Big Nose Parrot was born in France, not far from the border of Switzerland, in the year 1834. Parrot. <laughs> His last name was Parrot. Unfortunate yet appropriate, as he himself did possess a beak more fitting for the face of a parakeet than an outlaw. I should note, however, that we don't know for sure what his actual name was, or if he was really even from France. George's early life is a bit of a mystery, and being a criminal and all, he would go by several different aliases, and even at one point claim Ohio as his place of birth. Not much of an improvement over France, if you ask me. Still, though, most sources do list France as being his homeland, and since I like the idea of a cowboy hat wearing Pepe Le Pew running around with an uppity French accent... That's what we're going with. Like I said, the dude's life is a mystery. And as tempting as it was to go down that rabbit hole and try to find out all the juicy details of George's early life, I restrained myself. Let's face it. When it comes to George Parrott, it's not his life that was the most interesting aspect of the man. Nor was it his big-ass nose. No, it was what happened to George after his death. It's really intriguing. Still, though, his life, what little we do know, is worth looking at. With that said, let's take a glance at George the Outlaw. As far as I can tell, Big Nose first pops up on the radar in August of 1878, when he and his colleagues bungled a train holdup not too far east of Medicine Bow, Wyoming. Their exact target being a Union Pacific car hauling cash for the company payroll. Now this gang in question consisted of George, his nose, Frank McKinney, Sim Jan, that's S-I-M-J-A-N, Joe Manuse, John Sandy Wells, Tom Reed, John Irwin, Frank Toll, and Dutch Charlie Burris. Sim Jan, the one with the coolest name in my opinion, was supposedly the boss. The brains of the outfit, however, was evidently nobody. These bandits had the genius idea to wrap a loosened railroad spike with a telegraph wire, then hide in the brush with the intentions of yanking on the wire, thus dislodging the rails, which would then derail the train. Regrettably for the would-be robbers, Union Pacific employees soon came along in a hand car, noticed the loose spike, and actually got out and repaired it, and then just went along their merry way. Now, Big Nose and his bunch were watching them the entire time, and McKinney even wanted to open up fire and kill the two dudes. George and fellow gang member Frank Toll, however, protested, saying that they weren't there to kill section men. I guess the idea was they were just working stiffs doing their jobs. And besides, there's no profit in murder just for murder's sake. The flip side to that is, is that dead men tell no tales, which is exactly what the damn railroad employees did as soon as they got to the next town. Soon enough, a couple of law enforcement officials came to investigate. 
a Deputy Sheriff Robert Whittlefield and Union Pacific Detective Henry Tip Vincent. And you have no idea how much I want to call him Henry Just the Tip Vincent. Anyway, the duo tracked the bandits down to their hideout at Rattlesnake Canyon at the base of Elk Mountain. Even found their still smoldering campfire. Story goes the Widowfield placed his hand over the fire, commented to his partner that it was still hot, and that they would likely find the outlaws by nightfall. And as soon as he stood up, he was shot dead, a single bullet to either his head or his neck. Henry, just the tip, Vincent, still mounted, spurred his horse and attempted to escape. But he was boxed in and just blown out the saddle. Rising to his knees, he did try firing back, but he was just too exposed and outgunned. Dead in a matter of moments, just riddled with bullets. The killers took the weapons and anything else of value off the dead law dogs before covering their bodies with brush and moving on. Couldn't even afford them the decency of a shallow grave. By the way, this double murder was, according to multiple sources, the first time law enforcement officials were ever killed in the line of duty in Wyoming. Following the ambush, the Union Pacific Railroad put up $1,000 for the apprehension of those responsible. A reward that soon doubled to 2000 bucks, or over 50000 in today's money. If you Google Big Nose George, you'll see a lot of sources claiming that it was a $10,000 reward that doubled to 20000 But I'm calling bull butter on that one. Jesse James, arguably the most wanted man back in those days, had 10000 on his head. And the railroad really hated Jesse. I just don't think there's any way those stingy tycoons are going to offer up that kind of money for some nobody like Big Nose George. Also, there are some wanted posters for Parrot, and assuming they're real, which I'll admit is a big assumption, they too only list the reward as one or $2,000. Either way, the stakes were raised, and pretty soon some very dangerous men began hunting after Big Nose and the boys. The gang would remain elusive, however, splitting up and lighting out for safer pastures. A few, like George, would head up to Montana. Some would go to Canada, while others would hit up the Black Hills. Which brings us to Frank Toll, the first of the gang who ended up biting the dust. Just a month after helping George kill those two deputies, Frank himself was shot dead attempting to rob a stagecoach outside of Deadwood. John Irwin, who I only found listed as a member of the gang on one source, was a bit luckier. He was with Toll during the botched stage robbery and, when arrested, confessed to his role in killing Widowfield and Vincent. And I say lucky because instead of getting lynched, he only got life in prison. Sim Jan, Frank McKinney, Joe Manus, Jack Campbell, and John Wells all sort of disappeared to history. Or so it seems. Although there is some speculation about Sim and Frank, which I'll get to later. So now all we're left with is Big Nose George and Dutch Charlie Burris. Now these two bad boys ended up robbing a general store in Montana at gunpoint and, thus provisioned, traveled north trading some of their ill-gotten whiskey to Native Americans for horses. Once they arrived at Fort Benton, they sold the steeds and kept on moving. And bragging. It appears that George and Dutch Charlie just could not keep their damn mouths shut. Now, at some point, they split up as well, and Charlie got himself arrested, either in very late 1878 or early 1879. Arrested and put on a train bound for Rawlins, Wyoming. Ironically, it was the very same train that he and the boys had tried to rob back in August of 78. Alas, Dutch Charlie would never make it to Rawlins. When the train stopped to load up on coal in the now ghost town of Carbon, Wyoming, some 45, 50 miles west of Rawlins, it was stormed by an angry mob. A mob who wasted no time in dragging Charlie from the train and hanging his ass from the nearest telegraph pole. Remember old Deputy Widowfield? Well, once his body was recovered, he was buried there in Carbon. Charlie, however, wasn't considered worthy to be buried in the same graveyard as the man that he helped kill. 
So his final resting place, unmarked, lay somewhere outside the boundaries of that cemetery. Legend has it that it was the dead deputy's sister-in-law that kicked the barrel out from under Charlie, although a grand jury later found nobody responsible for the lynching. Imagine that. How much you want to bet some of those on the grand jury were some of the same ones in the lynch mob? George Parrott, old gonzo, big-nosed-looking ass, was still out there, though. Still robbing stagecoaches. He even got so bold as to rob the damn U.S. Army in broad daylight. The actual target in this robbery was a businessman named Morris Kahn, who was traveling from Fort Keogh with an escort of 15 soldier boys and a shitload of greenbacks, somewhere between four dollars to $14,000, all of which ended up in the hands of Big Nose George and whoever was riding with him at this time. Now, this particular score happened just outside of Terry, Montana, by the way. And you know how George B., he just could not stop bragging. He kept getting drunk and flapping his gums and nostrils in various saloons all throughout Montana. Didn't take long for word to trickle on down to Carbon County, Wyoming, and soon enough, the long arm of the law came calling. Once again, sources differ, but it looks like Carbon County Sheriff James Rankin was most likely the guy who finally caught up with George and his nose. Arrested him without incident and put him on a train bound for Wyoming. And just like his old buddy Dutch Charlie... Big Nose George soon found himself in the hands of a lynch mob when the train made a quick stop in Carbon. The vigilantes placed a noose around George's neck and even placed him up on a whiskey barrel. Only this time, nobody kicked. No, it seems that George begged and pleaded and gave such a full confession of his role in killing deputies Widowfield and Vincent that the mob just let him go, figuring there's no way that a jury in Rawlins would find the man innocent. They cut him down and handed him back over to the good sheriff. Of course, George changed his tune once he arrived in Rawlins and pled not guilty. And when he was arraigned on September 13th, 1880, he likely lied and told his lawyer his real name was George Francis Warden and that he was born in Dayton, Ohio in 1843. Now, I assume this is a lie, but who really knows? You know, an article on uh, True West magazine claims that the outlaw's real name was George Manuse. Parrot, Manuse, Warden, where does the truth lie? Who knows? Ha, get it? Nose, big nose. All right, whatever. Uh, in the end, it really doesn't matter. Big nose George is just big nose George. And that's what he'll probably always be remembered as. That said, the wheels of justice move slow there in Rawlins. A jury was sworn in on November 16th of 1880, over a month after he was arraigned. And sure as shit, they did find George guilty. Sentenced to this Joe Camel of the Old West to hang on April 2nd, 1881, over four months after the jury was sworn in. I guess the good citizens of Rawlings, Wyoming, didn't like stringing people up in the wintertime. Either that or they figured the ground would be too damn frozen to dig a grave. Now, George didn't take this sentence lying down. Thirteen days before his scheduled execution, he decided to make a break for it. Using a pocket knife that he was allowed to keep, George was somehow able to slip out of his shackles and hide and wait for the sheriff to make his rounds. Sure enough, when Rankin appeared, George jumped him, bashing the law enforcement officer's head in with the aforementioned iron shackles and knocking him nearly unconscious. Good chance Big Nose would have gotten away with it, too, had it not been for Sheriff Rankin's wife, Rosa. She heard the ruckus and came a-running, six-shooter in hand, fired a warning shot into the ceiling, and held Big Beak at gunpoint until more help arrived. And by this point, the local populace had ran slap out of patience when it came to Parrot. He had already taken part in the murder of two lawmen, and here he had just damn near done for a third. They decided they had waited long enough. The next morning, 30 armed and masked men entered into the jail and, ignoring the sheriff's urgings that they wait for the legal execution date, led Big Nose George out to meet his maker. He'd hang from a telegraph pole after all. 
just like his old par Dutch Charlie, and in front of an audience of around 200. Now, you've heard me describe various hanging methods on previous episodes. A hanging, if done right, causes the condemned man's neck to break and a near-instant death. It's the humane way to do things, in my opinion. But not everybody was good at tying a noose, and not every lynch mob cared too awful much about doing things the humane way. Suffice it to say that George's execution was just as sloppy as his criminal career. Now, there's a few versions of what exactly happened, and it's hard to piece them all together, but I'll try. It seems that the first attempt was a failure, either due to the rope breaking or just being too long and sagging enough for George to touch the ground with his feet. The drop wasn't very far, by the way, as they had him standing on a barrel of kerosene. On the second attempt, things didn't go too smoothly either. They gave up on the barrel and found a 12-foot-tall ladder to force George up on. Evidently, he got his hands loose and tried climbing from the ladder on top of the telegraph pole or some damn thing, and finally, he just begged for the mob to either shoot him or at least let him jump off on his own accord so that his neck would break. Look, George knew he was a dead man. Best-case scenario at this point was a quick death. But that didn't work out either, as the incensed mob seemed to want George to suffer. They slowly pulled the ladder out from under him, and George slowly strangled to death. I can't say for sure how long it took him to die, but I do know that some sources claim that they left the body of Big Nose George dangling from that noose for at least an hour. Hell, at one point they lowered him down, and a doctor refused to declare him dead, so they just yanked him back up. Whatever the exact details, at the end of the day of March 22, 1881, Big Nose George was dead. And you would think that's where I'd go ahead and wrap things up, right? Well, not so with Big George Parrot. His death is only the beginning of this strange tale. Had what I just shared about Big Nose been the entirety of his story, likely none of us would even have heard the man's name. He was just a run-of-the-mill road agent at best, right? Just like his cohorts, even the leaders like McKinney and Sim Jan. Footnotes in history. Names with no beginning or end. Ah, but Big George wouldn't fade from our collective memory so easily. Mostly thanks to a couple of macabre doctors, a pair of real sawbones by the names of Thomas McGee and John Eugene Osborne. Never, and I cannot stress this enough, never trust anybody named Eugene. Write that down. First thing these two quacks did was make a plaster death mask, thus preserving George's colossal snout for posterity. By the way, according to True West Magazine's Marshall Trimble, this was the only death mask ever made of an Old West outlaw. That we know of, at least. I did find an article in the Texas Observer titled, Who Were Those Masked Men? that I will link to in this episode's show notes. Evidently, there's a museum in Midland County, Texas, that claims to have the death masks of Jesse James, Wild Bill Hickok, Clay Allison, Butch Cassidy, and a few others. However, most experts agree that these masks are not the real deal. Next up, McGee and Osborne sawed open George's skull to study his brains. The skull cap, or the top portion of the skull, was given to Dr. McGee's 15-year-old assistant, Lillian Heath. More on her to come. As far as studying the brains goes, it seems that Dr. McGee's wife was, quote, criminally insane, whatever that means, due to injuries from a horse-riding accident. I guess the good doctor was curious if he could find something on George's brain that could fix his wife, or even, you know, try to figure out what caused George to choose the life of an outlaw. Osborne also may have had ulterior motives when it came to desecrating Parrot's body. Take this with a grain of salt, but supposedly the doctor was on a train that Big Nose once held up. The robbery, of course, delayed the train and caused Osborne to be late to a party. Now, I can see that being a little bit irritating, but it doesn't really justify what happens next. Dr. Osborne, Eugene, 
began slicing off strips of George's skin from his back, his thighs, and his chest. Epidermis samples he'd send to a tannery to have him turn into a nice pair of shoes and a matching medical bag. Weird, right? Well, we ain't done yet. Creepy Eugene had a special request for the shoes. Not only did he want them to be a stylish two-tone tan made out of the skin of another human being, but he also wanted the tips adorned with George's nipples. One on each shoe. Wing tits as opposed to wing tips. Hat tip to uh, author Deborah Hufford for that one. Check out her blog, by the way, uh, Notes from the Frontier. She had a pretty good post on Big Nose, including that little clever joke. I'll definitely be returning to her site in the future. Lots of good fodder for this podcast. That's Notes from the Frontier. I'll link to it in this episode's show notes. Wing tits indeed, Deborah. Unfortunately for Dr. Osborne, whoever made those shoes drew a hard line in the sand at adorning them with human nipples. Maybe. That was my initial thought, at least. You know, that whoever was tasked with making the shoes just flat out refused to, you know, put nipples on them. But then I got to thinking, maybe nipples don't hold up too well to a good tannin. And how exactly would that work, anyway? You know, would they be stretched out flat and tight or filled with some sort of substance to stand erect like little buttons? And how big are the nipples in question? We talking normal man-sized nipples or are we talking Joe Rogan in an ice bath nipples? Or how about Farrah Fawcett nipples, huh? Oh, man, I, I came across a Playboy featuring uh, Miss Fawcett when I was around 11 or 12 years old. And let me tell you, those nipples are permanently burned into my brain. Those bad boys are so long, I believe a damn bird might perch up on them, you know, if she were to walk around without a shirt on. The nipples are so long, they show up 15 minutes before she does. All right, though, that's neither here nor there. The important thing is that Dr. Crazy-Ass Osborne did receive his skin loafers, sans nipples, unfortunately, which he did wear when he was inaugurated as the damn governor of Wyoming in 1893. The governor. The dude also went on to become assistant secretary of state under Woodrow Wilson, proving the fact that only debauched degenerates serve in politics. But you already knew that, didn't you? Nipple shoes weren't Osborne's only wacky idea either. When the Panama Canal was finished, he tried to secure the remains of Christopher Columbus so they could be placed on a battleship to travel across the channel as part of the opening ceremony. As far as Big Nose George goes, everybody kind of sort of forgot about him. The long arm of the law soon put an end to rampant banditry of the 1870s and 80s there in Wyoming, and the state settled down. Roads were paved, indoor plumbing was installed, and homes were magically lit with electricity. Even Dr. Osborne lived a good long life, eventually passing away in 1943 at the age of 84. Progress even came to the small metropolis of Rawlings, Wyoming, whose population had blossomed to include over 7,400 souls by the year 1950, the same year that construction was begun on a new bank, construction that led laborers to make a grisly discovery. Buried in the ground was a whiskey barrel whose contents included human bones, half a skull, and you guessed it, a pair of leather shoes. There was an investigation, of course, and the locals accurately assumed that these remains were those of the fabled Big Nose George. Remember Lillian Heath, that 15-year-old medical assistant that was given the top half of George's skull? Well, she was still alive in 1950, at 85 years of age, and she still had the skull cap. She brought it in, and it did line up perfectly with the rest of the skull found in the barrel. Thus, authorities were able to positively identify the remains. That top portion of the skull had been used over the years as an ashtray, by the way, <laughs> as well as a doorstop and even a small flower pot. Lillian Heath was pretty interesting in her own right. After George's untimely death, she went on to become the first female physician 
in the state of Wyoming and lived another 11 years after George's remains were discovered. Passed away in 1962 at the age of 96. What a life, man. Lived in Wyoming in the 1870s back when you could still get scalped if you ventured too far off on your own. She was there for the Old West outlaws and lived long enough to see the beginning of the Cuban Missile Crisis. When asked how well she was accepted early on as a female doctor, she replied, quote, Men folks received me cordially, but women were just as catty as they could be, end quote. As far as I can tell, Big Nose George never did receive any sort of proper burial. However, if you'd like to pay the man a visit and show your respects to a real-ass outlaw, he can be found at the Carbon County Museum there in Rawlins, Wyoming. Part of him, at least. They've got George's death mask on display, as well as those shoes. Skullcap may or may not be there. Uh, at one point, it was being held at the Union Pacific Museum in Council Bluffs, Iowa. So if you're dead set on seeing an ashtray made out of a bandit skull, maybe go ahead and call him first to make sure it's available. As far as George's nipples are concerned, I don't know where they are. Sorry. So earlier, I very briefly mentioned Jesse James in regards to Frank McKinney and Sim Jan, you know, George's old buddies. Well, when George was locked up there in Rollins, he made the claim that those former compadres were, in fact, Frank and Jesse James. Do I buy it? No, I do not. Just like I don't really buy George's claims of being born in Ohio. And I'm not aware of either of the James boys spending time in Wyoming either. However, they did stay in McKinney, Texas for a spell back when they were gorillas under Quantrill. Frank James, McKinney, Texas. Frank McKinney. Hmm. So whatever, make of that what you will. Now, with all this talk of big noses, you're probably curious how big George's nose actually was. Big enough that legend states when they initially tried to bury him, you know, before the doctors got a hold of his body, the casket wouldn't shut because his nose got in the way. Now, that's obviously not true. But I couldn't help but think of another Old West legend named Big Nose. Doc Holliday's girlfriend, Big Nose Kate. I've looked at pictures of her both as a young lady and as an older woman. And her nose looks pretty average. Matter of fact, the younger pictures of Kate portray a very attractive woman. One theory as to why she was known as Big Nose was because she had a habit of sticking her nose into other people's business. But judging by the one known picture of George, plus his death mask, he did literally have a pretty big nose. Damn thing looks like a natural canopy. Looks like the dude could smoke a cigar in the rain with both hands tied behind his back. All jokes aside, though, it's not the end of the world if you've got a big nose. I got a big one myself, and according to a recent study, it might actually be a very good attribute to possess. So all you Toucan Sam lookalikes, listen up. A survey published in Basic and Clinical Andrology may have found a connection between the size of a nose and the size of a penis. I'm no doctor, so I won't bore you with all the details, but Surgeon Anthony Young claims men with larger noses tended to have larger than average tallywhackers, and that there seems to be a direct correlation. I will link the study in this episode's show notes. So if you've got a little bit of nostril domus action going on, you know, if, if anybody's ever accused you of breathing up all the air, you know, maybe you start showing people this study and ask them what the damn deal is, okay? Yeehaw! El Paso, back in April of 1886, was most definitely still the wild woolly west. Hell, this was almost nine years before the aforementioned John Wesley Harden would make the border town his home and his final resting place. In the year 1880, El Paso boasted a population of 736. A decade later, in 1890, the population had exploded to over 10,000. Of course, people had been living in the locale for much, much longer than that. Folsom points discovered in the greater El Paso region suggest at least 12,000 years of human habitation 
Tribes whose names we don't even know resided there. And so did tribes that we do know about, like the Yumano, and later on the Mescalero. And then the Spanish, who first visited the area way back in 1581, before establishing the village of El Paso in 1630. A village that was actually still a part of New Mexico until the 1850 Compromise. By 1859, a visitor had this to say about the village. Quote, the Texas town of El Paso had 400 inhabitants, chiefly Mexicans. Its businessmen were Americans, but Spanish was the prevailing language. All the features were Mexican. Low and flat adobe buildings, shady cottonwoods under which dusky, smoky women with swarthy children sold fruit, vegetables, and bread. Habitual gambling universal, from the boys' game of pitching quartillas to the great saloons where huge piles of silver were staked at Monte. In this little village, $100,000 often exchanged hands in a single night through the potent agencies of Monte and poker. There were only two or three American ladies, and most of the whites kept Mexican mistresses. All goods were brought on wagons from the Gulf of Mexico and sold in an advance of three or four hundred percent at eastern prices. From hills overlooking the town, the eye takes in a charming picture. Far-stretching valley and rich with orchards, vineyards, and cornfields, through which the river traces a shining pathway. Across it appear the flat roofs and cathedral towers of the old Mexican El Paso. Still further, dim, misty mountains melt into the blue sky. End quote. My goodness, sounds picturesque. Sadly, however, El Paso wouldn't stay a sleepy little exotic hamlet forever. The railroad would come in 1881, and with it an influx of migrants, mostly from back east. This accounts for the drastic change in population that I mentioned a minute ago, between the years 1880 and 1890. As you can imagine, a boost in population also means a boost in crime. What long before the boomtown became known as the six-shooter capital, as violence, gambling, and prostitution flourished. By 1890, El Paso had a new nickname, the Monte Carlo of the United States or as visiting U.S. President Benjamin Harrison called it, Sin City. And of course, El Paso, like many Western towns back in those days, was actually two separate entities. You had your respectable part of town, right? Where the so-called decent people lived. That's where you'd find legitimate businesses, churches, schools, and such. Then you had the other side of town, an area that would become known as the Tenderloin District. This is where a man could find temporary love, get a good drunk on, gamble away his money, and quite possibly his life. This is also where the broken lived, the downtrodden, the unfortunate, along with those that prey on their kind. And within this tenderloin district, you had an area known as the Utah Street Reservation. And that's where hundreds of soiled doves plied their trade. And by soiled doves, I mean working gals, prostitutes. One of which was a lady by the name of Alice Abbott, a.k.a. Big Alice, also known as Fat Alice. Now a little history lesson of El Paso that I shared with you. Alice Abbott likely didn't know anything about any of that. Probably she didn't even care. The only part that concerned her was when the railroad came to town, as it was her vessel of choice when she joined the growing population in the year 1881. Now we don't know much about Alice. What else is new, right? She was probably born sometime in the 1840s, possibly in Louisville, Kentucky. Luckily, there is at least one picture of Big Alice, so we know what she looked like. Dark-haired and thin-lipped, with somewhat of a plump face, Alice could be best described as looking stout, like the kind of lady that could lift heavy objects, as well as heavy men. You can only tell so much from one picture, you know? Thankfully, as far as Alice is concerned, we've got plenty of eyewitness descriptions. And they've all got one thing in common. Miss Abbott was a big gal. 
They say she stood six feet tall and weighed anywhere from 190 to 230 pounds, hence the name Big or Fat Alice. Now, me personally, I kind of take issue with this. First off, how the hell did anybody know what she weighed? I highly doubt she was sharing that information with anybody. And secondly, 200 pounds on a six-foot-tall woman isn't really what I'd consider overweight. Big, yes. At a height of six feet tall, she likely towered over most of the men who called El Paso home. But even if she weighed 230 pounds, eh, I don't know. I kind of feel like that doesn't really qualify as huge or anything. Healthy, maybe. Rubenesque, even. Or as I like to call it, a good time. And what if she was on the bigger side? You fellas are scared of a little bit of meat with your potatoes. Maybe you need to start taking your damn vitamins. They don't call them love handles for nothing. You know what I mean? Besides, let's be honest. The bigger the fupa, the tastier the chalupa. Okay. Full disclosure, I did find one and just one reference to Big Alice weighing in at 300 pounds. Which would make more sense considering the nicknames. And judging by that one picture... 300 pounds does look more accurate than 190. However, the point still stands, I guess. You know, for the time and place, she was considered a bigger woman. Anyway, once Miss Alice Abbott showed up in El Paso, she opened up her own joint on Utah Street. Number 19 Utah Street, to be exact. By the way, Utah Street is now known as South Mesa, for any of you living in or visiting El Paso. And by joint, I do mean whorehouse. A legal whorehouse. Kind of. I mean, sure, you did have to grease the cops every now and then, in more ways than one, I'm sure. You know, most of these madams were charged a quote-unquote fine of $10 a month, just the price of doing business. And then they likely paid a little extra to keep the peace, you know, protection money. Long story short, everybody was getting paid and everybody was getting laid. But not everybody was equal. There were levels to the horror game back in the Old West, especially in places like El Paso. The bottom of the rung, you have what was called the Crib Girls, sort of like your modern-day streetwalkers. They advertised their goods on public thoroughfares and took clients back to their small little dens or apartments, also known as cribs. These women could be purchased for as little as 50 cents and led what could only be described as miserable lives. And I don't say that out of judgment. I say it out of pity. You know, many of them were broken, spent, used up, abused, just eking out the last of their days. Got to imagine the sex traffic had played a very large part down in the cribs. A lot of women, if not all of the women there, were there against their will. Women who oftentimes couldn't even speak the same language as the men who were buying them. Then you had the saloon girls. Think of the gals who worked at the gym saloon on HBO's Deadwood. Just like on the show, the saloon girls would meet their clientele in the saloon proper and then take them to the back or upstairs and trade some loving for money. Once again, we're dealing with women who oftentimes did not have a choice in what they were doing. In the real-life Deadwood, the real-life Al Swearingen did lure these women to his saloon under false pretenses. The promises of jobs cleaning or cooking and stuff like that, only to then force them into prostitution. And if you wanted to leave, well, you did so at your own peril. Trust me, this practice ran rampant across the West. Just like the crib girls, saloon-working gals were often on the losing side of beatings and abuse. Another good example for these type of ladies would be from the movie Unforgiven. Remember the ones that were working at the Billards Hall for Skinny? Remember how that one girl got her face cut up? I can only assume that abuse like this also ran rampant. And that there was very little done in the way of justice other than paying off her pimp. These women, simply put, were just property. Of course, you also had the more upscale establishments. Once again, I'll use Deadwood as an example. Remember Cy Tolliver and the Bella Union? 
Remember what he said when Al came sniffing around? We're offering different atmospheres. You're a pioneering type, trailblazing type. You're going to draw a trailblazing element. To which Swearingen replied, meaning I get the ones who don't wash. And yeah, that is kind of what it meant. The fancier the place, the cleaner the girls, the more a man could expect to spend. Especially at places like the Shea and Me. Joni Stubbs' fancy whorehouse she opened up when she broke from Tolliver. That would have been the top rung, what would be called a parlor house. And from what I can tell, that is what it appears that Fat Alice ran. A proper whorehouse or a parlor house. Only problem was, she had competition directly across the street with another madam. A red-headed French-Canadian by the name of Etta the Grasshopper Clark. <laughs> I'm not making that name up. Fat Alice and the Grasshopper. I think I saw them open up for Trippin' Daisies back in 98. Uh, anyway, these two madams weren't always enemies, by the way. Evidence suggests that they were friends at one point and maybe even lovers. But money is money and you don't mess with another man or uh, woman's money. And you damn sure don't go poaching the girls, which it seems Miss Clark did, even if it was inadvertently. And while I'm pretty sure this little tussle was a long time coming, for sure Clark and Abbott had a history. The actual violence was directly related to the grasshopper stealing, or at least giving refuge to, one of Alice Abbott's top earners, a young lady named Bessie Colvin. And Bessie wasn't just one of Fat Alice's top earners, but she was one of the most popular girls in the entire damn Tenderloin district. As such, she could probably name her price, so it comes as no shock to learn that she and Alice began quarreling over money. By the way, there is a picture of Bessie online, and yeah, she was very pretty. It almost doesn't seem like a real picture from those days. It looks more like a modern day model is posing and using some sort of Instagram filter. So just judging by that one photo, the idea that Bessie Colvin was very sought after certainly adds up. And maybe it got to her head because apparently she stopped paying Alice the money she owed for rent. Story goes that Miss Colvin got some liquid courage in her and told Big Alice that she didn't owe her shit. I'm paraphrasing, of course. And then things escalated and Bessie finally had enough, bidding Alice adieu and sashaying her fine ass across the thoroughfare to Edda's joint, telling all who would listen that, quote, prime cut will soon be found across the street, end quote. Prime cut, of course, meaning her little poontang. You know, that's a good thing about being good at what you do. If you're an average employee, you're replaceable, or you might find it hard to get a new job somewhere else. To learn you a good skill, a good trade, and get really good at it, and you can take your skills elsewhere. Bessie knew she had that sweet pousse, that's French for pussy, and knew that it would be appreciated elsewhere. Only problem is, one doesn't simply just walk away from Big Alice Abbott. Now, if she's got anything to say about it. That's just not going to happen, okay? Alice don't play no shit, you hear me? Alice never been about that. Never been about playing no shit. Shout out to the other guys. I love that movie. All right, moving forward, Miss Alice promptly marched across that dusty street and began banging on the front door of Edda the Grasshopper's place. Opening the door just barely enough to look out, Edda told Alice to kick rocks and refused to let her angry rival come inside. Got to assume letting people come inside is an occupational hazard both Alice and Edda were familiar with, if you catch my drift. This refusal, however, didn't sit too well with Alice. Using her massive or stout frame, she ripped the entire door off its hinges and came barreling in, smashing Edda's face in the process. Not exactly a wilting flower herself, and knowing full well you can't have a conscience in the pimp game, Edda Clark went for the nearest weapon she could find, a heavy brass gas lighter. 
Now, these old gas lighters, from what I can tell, they aren't tiny. They're long enough, about two and a half, three feet long, to light street lamps or high up ceiling lights. Made of brass, they usually have a wooden handle and a valve key on the end for turning on gas, as well as a wick for lighting lamps. Not something you'd want to take into battle, but then again, it's not exactly something you'd want to get slapped upside the face with either. In the right hands, it would be possible to beat a man or a plump madam to death with such a contraption, which I'm sure is what Etta had in mind, swinging that brass lighter at Alice's large head with all she had. It was no use, though. Alice Abbott had her dander up. She deflected the blow and rammed her fist into Etta's mouth, sending the smaller madam tumbling to the ground. Alice then grabbed Etta by the wrist and began dragging her across the floor like a damn Swiffer wet jet. Finally, Etta mustered up enough strength to escape Abbott's clutches, fled to her quarters, quickly re-emerging with a bone-handled forty-four bulldog revolver. Miss Alice, I want you to leave my house, Etta ordered, thumbing back the hammer. Oh, I'll leave your house, was Alice's reply, as she did the exact opposite, started approaching Etta with a menacing look on her face, just seeming to disregard the pistol entirely. Now, by this time, Etta was done making threats. I guess she didn't play either. I'll kill the damn bitch, she cried. Now, by the way, I'm not making this dialogue up. These are the reported words that they said to each other. I'll kill the damn bitch, is what Etta said, right before she squeezed the trigger, sending around straight into Alice's moneymaker. Yes, you heard me correctly. For a lack of better words, Etta shot Alice in the cooter. My God, I'm shot, Abbott bellowed, staggering out of the cat house and collapsing on the street. Etta wasn't done, though, and aiming to finish things, she followed, firing three more rounds at Alice that luckily missed their mark. Now, that forty-four slug that hit Alice struck her in something called the pubic arch, a medical term that a local paper would report either accidentally or tongue-in-cheek as her public arch, alluding to her occupation. Now, I didn't know what a pubic arch was, so I googled it. Medically speaking, it's the notch formed by the inferior rami of the two conjoined pubic bones as they diverge from the midline. And that's according to Merriam-Webster, who I don't believe was a prostitute. But I still don't really know what a pubic arch means, so you know, I kept looking. I'll try to sum it up for those of you like me without a damn medical degree. But here's what it is. Think about those fake skeletons we used to have back in school. Now imagine that pelvis bone region. The pubic arch is the very bottom of the pelvis bone. You know what? Better yet, just Google it or trust me in saying that it's not exactly a fun place to get shot. Either way, once you understand what I'm talking about, you'll get why I say that Miss Abbott caught around right there in her coochie coochie ya ya ya. Talk about a vaginal discharge. Luckily for her, the bullet passed on through without hitting any vitals. Although I suppose her little flower pot could be considered vital. Still, though, it wasn't much longer before she was back on her feet, and back, and knees, making that money. Etta Clark ended up turning herself into authorities and got slapped with attempted first-degree murder charges. Less than a month later, a jury would find her not guilty on grounds of self-defense. And while I agree she was definitely defending herself, I do wonder how many customers of hers were on that jury. As far as Alice goes, well... She may not have let bygones be bygones. Like I said, that paper, to her humiliation, referred to her pubic arch as her public arch. And she had to deal with the fact that Etta remained unpunished, right there across the street. And in my mind, at least, I imagine that Etta probably would have been taunting Alice. It does look like there is a chance 
that Alice got her revenge. And if she did, she waited two long years to do so. Finally, one dark night in the summer of 1888, Ed of the Grasshopper's place got torched. Completely burned to the ground and reduced her and her ladies to plying their trade on the streets. Right along with the crib girls. At least temporarily. You know, eventually a wealthier client came along and built her a new parlor. Now, obviously, I can't prove that it was Alice that set the building on fire. But I don't believe much in coincidences, and she certainly did have the motivation. Abbott would continue pimping in El Paso until 1890 before selling her cat house to another infamous madam, Tilly Howard. And finally, on April 7, 1896, Big Alice Abbott's heart gave out. She was likely only in her early 50s, and she was buried there in the Evergreen Cemetery. I'm not sure what happened to Bessie Colvin, the Helen of El Paso, if you will, other than that she did return to work for Big Alice after that shooting incident over at Edda's brothel, which leads me to believe that Alice's pimp hand was indeed strong. As for Edda, her place would burn down again in 1905. Already not doing all that well health-wise, inhaling all that smoke didn't much help matters. She herself would pass away a few years later in Atlanta in 1908 as a direct result of her lingering illness and the complications from that smoke inhalation. Now, the pictures we have of these ladies come from Alice Abbott's photo album, which is full of all kinds of interesting notes left by the madam herself. Apparently, she kept pictures of all her soiled doves, and many of them have the letter A surrounded by a heart drawn on them a symbol that some think indicates the girls who also doubled as Alice's lovers. Other notes she scribbled in the album include nicknames such as the Missouri Whacker, Bitches of the Road, and one prostitute she dubbed Loverboy Mabel Jacobs. As far as the picture of Etta Clark goes, well, Alice marked a big red X over and left a note that appears to read, quote, whore to end words, end quote. I'll let you figure that one out. You know, I don't know about you, but when I consider Old West prostitutes, it's very easy for me to slip into a, uh, I don't know, a fantastical frame of mind. Like, you ever seen Westworld on HBO? I mean, the women on there are sexy, right? But then I remind myself of how it really was. Nobody brushed their teeth, and I do mean nobody. In the early 1900s, only 7% of American households brushed their teeth or at least had toothpaste in their homes. During the First World War, most of the Army recruits had such poor oral hygiene that the military considered dental disease a national crisis. And that was nearly 40 years after Big Alice and Etta got in that fight. The women didn't shave their legs or anything else for that matter. Neither did the men. Nobody wore deodorant. And how often do you think these prostitutes bathed? Let's pretend it was once a day, which it for sure wasn't, but let's just say it was. How many men did they service in a day? Men who also weren't bathing on the regular. And this was El Paso. It gets hot there. Like, really hot. Even the stench of the most upscale parlor house in 1880 would be enough to make us modern-day people gag. But I suppose it's what you're used to, right? As far as the actual historical town of El Paso goes, I did try to find out what now stands at 19 South Utah Street, where Fat Alice plied her trade. But I don't know what that location is in terms of present-day South Mesa. If it is 19 South Mesa, then it is just a fenced-in empty lot in front of a SK Cosmetics beauty supply building. We know that Alice sold her whorehouse to Tilly Howard. However, that place burned down. But Tilly's new brothel was just a block away at 214 South Mesa, which also appears to just be an open lot. 
right next to a beauty salon and a sporting goods store. Interestingly enough, that place at 214 South Mesa was the site of another famous Wild West incident in 1894 when a guy named Bass Outlaw, not to be confused with the outlaw Sam Bass, got himself shot to death by El Paso Constable John Selman. Constable Selman, of course, would go on to kill John Wesley Harden just a year later at the Acme Saloon located on, you guessed it, what's now known as Mesa Street. Actually, the northwest corner of Mesa and San Antonio Avenue which now appears to be, if I'm looking at this map correctly, an Al Rio toy store. And I believe, uh, check me on this, but I believe this is the same corner that Dallas Studenmeyer had his famous four dead and five seconds gunfight. And it's the same area where John Selman, who I just mentioned, himself was gunned down just nine months after he gunned down John Wesley Harden. Whew, lots of killing and lots of history right there on El Paso's Mesa Street. And a whole lot of whoring. Remember that bulldog revolver I mentioned that Eddie used to shoot Alice? Well, that's basically just a snub-nosed revolver. It's the same type of pistol that was used to assassinate U.S. President James Garfield in 1881, that one being chambered in 442. And I reckon that's about all I've got on Alice Abbott and Etta Clark. For a very brief period, Newton, Kansas was the end of the Chisholm Trail for the cattle herds coming up out of Texas. And the town seemed to pop up nearly overnight. There's a story of someone passing through Newton in May of 71 and only seeing a couple of buildings. The first train would arrive in July, and by late summer, it was a regular boomtown. This was before the Santa Fe line made its way to Wichita, and seeing as how Newton was a good 60 or so miles closer to Texas than Abilene was, it soon became the destination of choice for the trail bosses. Now, the two men I mentioned earlier, McCluskey and Bailey, they were these so-called special policemen hired by the railroad to help keep the peace during a very contentious election taking place that very August there in Newton. And I was unable to find out the exact details of said election, other than it had some to do with the railroad or a bond of some sort. Remember, since Newton was a cow town, their entire economy was built around being a hub for the Santa Fe Rail. And this brought a lot of money to the town, especially in the form of all them buckaroos coming up out of Texas who would be more than ready to spend some of their hard-earned money once they sold off their beeves. And one of these young cowpokes was a man by the name of Hugh Anderson, who, unfortunately for Mike McCluskey, considered the recently departed Billy Bailey to be a friend. According to at least one source, the two men were possibly related through Hugh's mama's side of the family. Whatever the connection, Mr. Anderson was outraged to learn that Bailey had been gunned down like a dog in the street. And, well, he decided to even up the score. Speaking of McCluskey, as soon as he terminated Bailey, he got to worrying about having his neck stretched, so he skedaddled. Not for long, though. Once he was assured that the killing would most likely be considered justifiable, he returned. Rumor has it that Billy Bailey had previously killed a couple of guys in various gunfights, so I guess all Mike had to say was that he feared for his life. A defense that, while it may have worked in the court of law, would fall on deaf ears when it came to the Texas cowboy, Hugh Anderson. He and his friends went hunting McCluskey, and they found him, along with a buddy of his named Jim Martin, in a saloon playing cards. Tuttle's dance hall, it were located in what passed for the red light district there in Newton, an area the locals called Hyde Park. And the men in question, those friends of Hugh Anderson, were none other than Jesse Woodson James, Leroy Butch Cassidy, and Paul G.D. Bunyan. And brother, they was looking for blood. And no, that last part is absolutely not true. The actual names of Anderson's friends are names you've probably never heard before. Henry Kearns, Jim Wilkerson, and Billy Garrett. Together with Hugh, they were just four wild-eyed young cowboys. 
a few of the legion that trailed cattle from Texas to Kansas back in them days. And if it weren't for the events I'm about to describe, it's very likely that all of these men, McCluskey and Anderson included, would be all but forgotten to history, except for maybe appearing on someone's Ancestry.com tree. However, that's not to say they were just a bunch of nobodies. Billy Garrett in particular was said to have already come out on top in a couple of shooting scrapes. And Hugh Anderson weren't no slouch either. The son of a rancher, Anderson had very recently rode with none other than John Wesley Harden in pursuit of a wanted killer. And take this next part with a grain of salt as I was not able to verify it. But there is a possibility that Hugh and his older brother had been participants in the Sutton-Taylor feud. What's for certain is that Anderson wasted no time in confronting Mike McCluskey. And he did not mince words when doing so. Called Mike a cowardly son of a bitch to his face and said he was going to blow his dang head off. And this weren't no idle threat either. No sooner were the words out of Hugh's mouth when he cleared leather. But let's just back up for a sec. Remember, this dance hall wouldn't have exactly been empty of civilians when all this went down. There would have been other customers, likely other cowboys, looking to blow off some steam, wet their whistles, and hopefully their carrots. You would have had dance hall employees, a bartender or two, probably a few working gals, maybe even a faro dealer in addition to just a few random citizens of Newton who decided to have a nightcap before calling it a day. But I don't know any of their names. The only other name that I can give you that was there at Tuttle's dance hall at this very crucial point when Hugh Anderson threw down was a teenager by the name of Riley. A longer he was. Had tuberculosis. By all accounts, it wasn't looking good. Now, this kid is somewhat of a mystery. <laughs> Scratch that. He's a huge mystery. Nobody seems to know where he came from, and he doesn't appear to have any family or anything like that. Matter of fact, the only thing that Riley did have was a friend, one solitary friend in the whole wide world, a man who had previously been kind to him. And that man was Mike McCluskey. Now, what Mike did to garner the undying loyalty of this Riley character, I have no idea. A few sources will tell you that McCluskey taught the youngster how to handle a firearm, or that he was simply nice to him when others weren't. Whatever the cause, the kid soon became known as McCluskey's shadow. Okay, now we've got all the pieces in place, right? Hopefully you've kind of got an idea of the situation. Hugh Anderson and his pals come hunting for McCluskey looking to get even and find him in a dance hall with Jim Martin and somewhere nearby was the shadow Riley. Anderson quickly threatens McCluskey and unholsters his revolver and what follows is one of the deadliest gunfights of the Old West. Upon seeing the brandished revolver, Jim Martin jumped to his feet and tried to defuse the situation, but it was just too late. Anderson's pistol barked and Mike McCluskey took a round to the side of the neck. Still, though, the wounded man was able to pull his own iron, which misfired. Damn it. Mike drops to the floor and Anderson closes in and pumps several more rounds straight to McCluskey's back. By this point, all hell had broken loose. Hugh's buddies, the aforementioned Garrett, Kearns, and Wilkerson, they started firing as well. At whom, we do not know. One theory is that they opened up just to simply keep the crowd at bay. Likely they couldn't even see what they were shooting at due to all the gun smoke and they almost certainly had no idea that their most immediate threat lie nearby in the form of a sickly and emaciated teenager who had just witnessed the only friend he had gunned down right before his eyes. Now, there's a dramatic version of the story that says Riley then calmly walked to the saloon door and barred it shut for the inside so as not to allow anyone to escape. Sort of like that scene in that movie The Bronx Tell, if you've ever seen it. You know the one. Now you can't leave. Now, I personally don't believe Riley locked the door, though. It's a bit, uh, I don't know, theatrical. But what I do think happened, what most people, even historians, agree on, is that as soon as Mike McCluskey was gunned down, this young Riley produced two revolvers of his own and commenced a deal in death. 
his bullets ripped into Anderson, all of Anderson's friends, and whoever else got the damn way. Even McCluskey's other pal Jim took a fatal round to the throat. By the time the smoke cleared, eight men would lay dead or dying. As for Riley, well, he simply lowered his guns and stepped out into the street, never to be seen again. Ooh, gives me chills just thinking about it. This whole bloody ordeal probably lasted less than 90 seconds, if that. And some unknown teenager just dropped more men in one gunfight than any of your more well-known and celebrated gunmen. Which begs the question, who the hell was this Riley kid? Seriously, nobody knows where he came from or where he went. He just flat out disappeared. And like I said, eight men were shot. Jim Martin, Garrett, an innocent railroad man who took a bullet to the gut, and Mike McCluskey were all dead. Anderson was shot twice in the legs, and his buddies Kearns and Wilkerson were wounded as well, along with another innocent bystander. And each one of these casualties were due to the lethal guns of Riley, except for Mike McCluskey, of course. As for Anderson, he would survive his wounds, but he was facing serious legal troubles. A warrant was issued for his arrest on account of gunning down McCluskey, but Hugh was snuck out of town and back into the safe beckoning arms of the Lone Star State before he could be brought to justice. And like I said, Riley just disappeared. And that, in a nutshell, is the shootout at Hyde Park, also known as the Newton Massacre. But trust me, the story is far from over. Look, if you're like me, then you were probably at least a little familiar with this fight already. I mean, I've been reading some version of it for as long as I can remember. And for the most part, the story is pretty consistent, and it's pretty similar to what I just described, especially with the strong emphasis on this young man, Riley. I always wondered, though, you know, could there be more to the tale? What would I find if I dug just a little deeper? Luckily, I was not disappointed. I also didn't have to go digging all that deep. Turns out somebody had done quite a bit of research on our behalf, and that someone is a lady named Christine Schmucker, the curator for the Harvey County Historical Museum there in Newton. More on Chris later, I just wanted to point out that her work was phenomenal. But first, let's address the fake elephant in the room. You go ahead and Google the Newton Massacre or the shootout at Hyde Park, and you're sure to find another exciting tale of revenge. One that would take place a couple of years after the gunplay I just described. Story goes that Mike McCluskey had a brother. And if there's one thing brothers don't care for, it's someone else murdering their sibling. I got a brother too, okay? And if he needs killing, I'll be the one to do it. Allegedly. Not some rando. And I reckon Mike's brother Arthur felt the same way. Remember, Hugh Anderson was safely whisked back to Texas following that shootout. But according to this version of events I'm about to recount, he would soon find himself back in Kansas, Medicine Lodge to be exact, working as a bartender. And as soon as Arthur McCluskey found out, he sent an emissary on over to formally invite Anderson to a duel. Yeah, a proper duel. This wasn't going to be no wild free-for-all like the one Mike died in or Billy Bailey for that matter. No, this would be a stand-in-the-street affair with rules and such. Anderson was even given a choice, pistols or knives, and he chose pistols. I can't blame him there. Both men stood back to back, walked several paces away, and then, at the signal of a pistol shot, whirled and began firing at each other. And both men drew blood. Matter of fact, they both emptied their damn revolvers. And although both were horribly wounded, neither one was willing to call it quits. According to one dubious reporter who claimed to have witnessed the fight, quote, McCluskey, summoning by a supreme effort his remaining strength, drew his knife and began to crawl feebly in the direction of his antagonist. The latter, who had raised himself to a sitting position, saw the movement and prepared to meet it, end quote. What followed was a good old hack fest with the gruesome duo slicing and stabbing until finally, with the last flicker of a blade, 
Both Hugh Anderson and Art McCluskey lay still in the street, deader in hell. At least, to quote Mike Rowe, that's the way I heard it. Kind of. I mean, there are a few sources that are willing to admit that maybe Hugh Anderson actually survived his wounds and once again returned to Texas and lived to be an old man. And they admit that because, well, it's true. And we know it's true because there's one hell of a clear paper trail when it comes to Hugh Anderson. Listen, I love a good fight to the death as much as the next man, believe me. But here at the Wild West Extravaganza, we try to focus on true tales from the wild and wooly West. As such, I do at least attempt to separate fact from fiction when I can. And it turns out this is one situation where I definitely can do so. Once again, largely due to the research of Christine Schmucker, who we'll get to later. As far as that fatal duel there at Medicine Lodge, there's one source and one source only. And that source is a shady AF news correspondent that went by the alias of Allegro. Yes, Allegro. Sounds like some sort of over-the-counter allergy medication or something. Common side effects of Allegro include nausea, diarrhea, upset stomach, muscle or back discomfort or pain, sleepiness, drowsiness, erectile dysfunction, anal bleeding, anal fissures, anal warts, anal anything, a propensity to listen to horrible podcasts. Please consult your physician. You get the drift. And when it comes to this Allegro guy, let me tell you, the dude knew how to spin a tail. He had also reported on the gunfight at Hyde Park back in 1871, and he was the one that dubbed Riley as the avenging nemesis. Matter of fact, let me read you that passage so you can get an idea of what sort of flair that this Allegro guy wrote with. In August of 1871, very shortly after the actual gunfight at Newton, he wrote, quote, There is an avenging nemesis on track. A stalwart figure suddenly appears on the scene. For an instant, he remains motionless, as if studying the situation. Then a sheet of flame vomits forth, apparently from his hand, and a Texan staggers from the room across the area and falls dead at the door of the Alamo. Another and another and another shot follows until six men have bowed to his prowess. End quote. So here's the deal. This Allegro, in addition to being a correspondent to various newspapers, also made a living as a fiddle player there in Kansas dance halls. At least he did before getting run out of the territory. He would soon, however, continue to write salacious stories for a rag dubbed the New York World, but even they got tired of him, fired him and doxed him, saying that his true identity was, quote, a shyster named E.J. Harrington, who was utterly unworthy of confidence and continence and belonged in the penitentiary, end quote. And it is this man, this quote-unquote shyster, who is our only source when it comes to the duel at Medicine Lodge. Now, before you get to, but Josh and me, it's not just this bad reputation of Allegro, who was also referred, by the way, uh, in the Newton papers as a deadbeat, that makes me question the validity of the duel. Now, some people point to the location of this alleged fight as being proof positive that the story was fake. Allegro says it took place in Medicine Lodge, which he described as being, quote, in the very heart of the Indian nation, about 100 miles south of the Kansas frontier, end quote. Now, you and me know that Medicine Lodge was, in fact, in Kansas and not in the Indian nation or Indian territory. But I am of the opinion that this could possibly be explained away just by the awkward phrasing. To a greenhorn like Legro, everything outside of the city limits there in Kansas was the Indian nation. And I mean, in one sense, he could be right. You know, you had a lot of Arapaho and Southern Cheyenne, and Kiowa, and even your occasional Comanche out there. Furthermore, the town of Medicine Lodge, which was founded in 1873, the year the duel allegedly took place, was only 25 miles north of official Indian territory, and coincidentally about 100 miles southwest of Newton. So Allegro's uh, description of being 100 miles south of the Kansas frontier can easily be explained, in my opinion. Now, the main issue with this story, to me, is that there's zero corroboration. 
Allegro claimed that he and about 70 others witnessed McCluskey and Anderson fight to the death. Yet there's no proof that anyone anywhere at this time nor in the years that followed ever mentioned it. Matter of fact, the local papers there in Kansas were already calling the story a lie almost as soon as it was printed. And furthermore, we know the ultimate outcome of the duel, the death of Hugh Anderson, is absolutely not true. Here's where the paper trail comes into play that I mentioned earlier. You know, thanks to census and marriage records, as well as family recollections, we've got a pretty good general overview of Anderson's entire life. He was born in November of 1851, by the way. So he was still just 19 years old when he threw down on Mike McCluskey there in that dance hall. Rash and full of piss and vinegar and probably thinking he could live forever. Just like a thousand other young men you can still find to this day in dance halls scattered from Houston to Midland. Full of fake courage and meanness, especially come payday. Not to say that Anderson wasn't from tough stock. As I mentioned previously, his daddy was a rancher and veteran of the Civil War, having served in the Shiloh Home Guard in DeWitt County. And as I previously teased, the family may have been involved in the Sutton-Taylor feud. And while I could find no solid proof of that, I did find some pretty good evidence that our young Hugh Anderson did in fact know John Wesley Harden. Now that's an interesting story all on its own. In early July of 1871, a Baccaro by the name of Juan Badina shot and killed Billy Coran, trail boss. This led some wealthy cattlemen to recruit none other than the notorious Wes Harden to track this Badina character down. According to the book Ten Deadly Texans, Harden ran into Billy's brother John as well as a young cowboy named, you guessed it, Hugh Anderson. And together this bunch was able to locate Mr. Juan Badina at Sumner City, about 60 miles south of Newton, on July 7th. And once located, John Wesley Harden's pistols fart and another Juan bit the dust. Get it? Another Juan? One? Eh, whatever. Anyway, the gunfight there at Hyde Park would occur just about a month and a half later. And it does seem that this may have been Hugh Anderson's scared straight moment. Remember, he was still a teenager himself. That's another weird angle to this whole story. There's so much emphasis placed on the youth of Riley, who we're going to get to in a minute. But many of the sources I've seen list Riley as being 18 years old. However, when it comes to Hugh Anderson, we automatically imagine a grown man with plenty of experience under his belt. And that could not be further from the truth. And yeah, you know, John Wesley Harden would have only been about 18 years old himself in 1871, but I do think he was just built different. Some men, most men, don't have the stomach for such deadly action. PTSD is real, and most of us just want to live our lives peacefully. Harden, however, was a bit of an anomaly. A pure killer who didn't seem to fear death nor have any respect for the sanctity of life. He'd continue his violent ways for the next 20 years, whereas Anderson seemed to steer clear of trouble after gunning down McCluskey. Once back in Texas, Hugh would get married at the young age of 20 after recuperating from his wounds. And his first son was born in 1873, the same year when he was supposed to be up there in Kansas fighting Art McCluskey to the death. By the way, I'm no detective, but uh, I would like to point out that I was not able to find an Arthur McCluskey anywhere near Kansas in the 1860s, 70s, or 80s. Now take that for what it is. I'm not saying it's definitive proof that the man didn't exist, but I am saying that the proof isn't readily available for a dummy like me to find. Back to Hugh Anderson. His wife would die sometime in the 1870s, and by 1880, the widower is living in McCulloch County, Texas, working as a stock raiser, a career he would continue even after his second marriage in 1884, as he and his new bride relocated to New Mexico couple would have two daughters, but unfortunately, Hugh Anderson would find himself a two-time widower by the year 1900. A decade later, in 1910, Hugh was still alive and well there in New Mexico, now living with his grown son Oscar and his family, and still working as a stockman. 
In mid-June of 1914, old Hugh, now 60-something years old, took refuge under a tree during a rainstorm. The tree was struck by lightning, and that was the end of Hugh Anderson, who the local paper dubbed a well-known cattleman. He's buried over in Tenney, New Mexico, by the way, just outside of Lincoln. And as far as anybody knows, he never once mentioned no duel up in Medicine Lodge. Hugh's younger brother, Wyatt, who lived all the way up to 1948, would later describe that cattle drive that took place back in 1871. Now, Wyatt would have only been five or six at the time, but he does confirm hearing that Hugh did kill a man in Kansas that summer. And that their older brother, Richmond, also had a couple of killing scrapes, one in Texas and one in Kansas. And yeah, just like his brother, Wyatt Anderson likewise never mentioned any second duel with uh, Arthur McCluskey. I think it's safe to say that that duel never happened. Not only was the man who penned the original article an untrustworthy source, but there's also zero evidence. And you gotta have evidence. As far as the mysterious Riley goes, oh boy, where to start? Look, your guess is as good as mine. The biggest question I initially had was whether or not Riley even existed. I mean, there are some obvious holes in the story, right? There was a coroner's jury formed following the shootout to determine whether or not Hugh Anderson murdered Mike McCluskey. And shortly thereafter, a warrant was issued for Anderson's arrest. And it turned out to be quite the exciting affair. Remember, young Hugh Anderson wasn't in town alone. He was with a group of half-wild cowpokes who weren't too happy about the findings of that coroner's jury. Matter of fact, they promised that bodies would soon be hanging like ornaments from telegraph poles if Hugh was arrested. Anderson's father, Walter, then 50 years old, wasted no time in getting to Newton and not only securing the best medical care for his boy, but also appealing to the business leaders there in town to help get his son out. For their part, they wanted to avoid any additional bloodshed, so a plan was soon concocted to spirit the wounded cowboy out in the dark at night. The excitement was intense, recalled Newton resident, Judge Robert W.P. Muse, going on to say, quote, and the city marshal Tom Carson and his assistants, all heavily armed, were parading the streets day and night with warrants for the arrest of Anderson, end quote. Once the local sawbones decided that Hugh could be safely moved, and with the help of the aforementioned judge, the young man was placed on a train at about 2 a.m. Thus ends the third or fourth chapter in Newton's bloody history, a town only a little over three months old. But if the worst and beastly prostitution of the sexes is continued and the town is controlled by characters who have no regard for virtue, decency, or honor, it will not soon become fit for the abode of respectable people, reported the Abilene Chronicle on August 24th, 1871. So yeah, there you go. You know, a lot was written about Hugh Anderson directly following the shootout, but there's barely a mention of this mysterious shadow, Riley. The correspondent Allegro didn't even mention Riley by name, remember? only referring to the shooter as the quote-unquote avenging nemesis. Matter of fact, it is this Judge Muse who seems to be the first to name the kid, saying, quote, A friend of McCluskey, a boy named Riley, some 18 years of age, quiet and inoffensive in deportment, and evidently dying from consumption, end quote. He'd go on to recall that Riley was known locally as McCluskey's shadow and that he was a, quote, thin, tubercular man who followed the railroad gunman around like a little dog that barked and snapped from behind his master. End quote. Judge Muse, who, while a citizen of Newton, wasn't actually present at the dance hall on the night in question, was also the one that theorized that Riley coolly locked the door of that saloon before drawing his revolvers. A poem published a year after the incident also lists Riley by name. And this poem, penned by Theodore F. Price, reads as follows. What form strides o'er the threshold red, with weapons fiercely clenched? He looks upon McCluskey dead, with gory garments drenched. 
They calmly aimed, the trigger drew. A Texan died, his aim was true. Seven gory forms before him lying. That friend was fearfully avenged. Grim Riley turned away. I don't know. You would think there would at least be more said of this Riley guy. Why was there no warrant issue for his arrest? Or if there was, why no mention of it? Nor mention of the deputies walking the streets of Newton searching for him as opposed to Anderson. There was all this excitement about Hugh leaving town in the middle of the night and he only killed one man, whereas Riley took down several. In 1950, nearly eight decades after the gunfight, a newspaper there in Newton quoted an unnamed prominent citizen as saying, quote, law-abiding men knew what had taken place in Tuttle Saloon. They furnished the youth Riley with saddle and bridle. A livery stable owner gave him a pony and he rode out of town that night and wound up in Ellsworth. Nothing more is heard of him, and it is presumed that his pulmonary disease ended his life. Skip ahead another 20 years, and in 1971, an author named William Moran wrote in his book, Santa Fe and the Chisholm Trail in Newton, that he thought Riley could have escaped town the next morning, possibly as a stowaway, and, you know, simply changed his name. And according to another author, Mary Sandoz, uh, she wrote in her book, The Cattleman, that there was a posse formed to look for Riley, but of course they never found him. Ugh, so few details, so many questions. I suppose, though, that it's not that surprising that the good citizens of Newton would likely want Riley out of town as quickly as possible. You know, you and me, we look back at these stories and they're exciting, right? Cowboys and gamblers and shootouts, frontier towns. But to the people living there in Newton, you know, the majority of them were law-abiding citizens. Normal people, shopkeeps and merchants and hotel operators and barbers and stuff like that. Family men. They didn't like crime any more than you and I do. We know that, according to Judge Muse, they were more than willing to help Anderson get out of town if it meant no more killing. Likely as not, they were equally as willing to sneak young Riley, if that was his name, out of town as well, probably hoping he'd never come back. And surely they would have never dreamed me and you would be talking about him 150 years later. And don't call me Shirley. But man, you know, I sure wish I knew who Riley was. Driving me crazy. And for what it's worth, there are theories, but unfortunately none of them hold much water. One that really piqued my interest is that the young man wasn't really consumptive and that he not only survived his escape from Newton, but lived for many, many more years under the alias of Doc Middleton. Now, if you're not familiar with Doc, whose real name, by the way, was Jim Riley, he was one hell of a horse thief. He was also described as being a very thin, soft-spoken man, which would line up with Judge Muse's description of the Newton Riley. Middleton was born in 1851, so his age would have fit as well. And then there's the fact that Doc wasn't afraid to resort to violence, having already killed a man by the tender age of 18, a killing that landed his ass in Huntsville Prison. Now, he would eventually escape, but here's the thing. Not until 1874. Our gunfight at Hyde Park took place in 1871, when Doc was still behind bars. So unless I've got my facts wrong here, I think it's safe to say that Doc Riley Middleton is not R. Riley. By the way, it's thought that Doc earned that title by the way he could doctor or alter a horse's brand. I'll have to look more into Middleton one of these days. He might just be a future topic here on the Wild West Extravaganza. All right, so here's what we're left with in the end. Gunfight at Newton most certainly took place. Eight men were shot, four of whom died. We know Hugh Anderson opened up the ball and that it's likely his bullets that did McCluskey in. As for the mysterious shooter Riley, who the hell knows? While I don't believe that he locked the doors of the saloon, I do think there's enough evidence to conclude that he not only existed, but that he was also present and a participant in the gunfight at Hyde Park. As to how many of the wounded and dead he accounted for, as opposed to Anderson's friends who also opened up fire, I don't know. And as far as what happened to Riley after the shootout, I doubt any of us will ever know. 
It's my opinion that in cases like this, it's almost always the simplest answer that turns out to be true. Occam's razor, right? I tend to think that Riley probably did have tuberculosis and that he was probably already on death's door when he shut them smoke wagons there in Tuttle's dance hall. More than likely, the young man fled town and he didn't survive another cold Kansas winter. Just another kid buried in a pauper's grave somewhere, probably under a damn Starbucks now. And once again, as far as the duel at Medicine Lodge, I think we can safely say that was a figment of Allegro's imagination. There's only one recorded telling of the story pinned under an assumed name by an untrustworthy source. A source reported as a liar, even at that time. And in the years that followed, there have absolutely been no other pieces of evidence backing up these claims. Either way, the whole ordeal is fascinating. The gunfight in Newton didn't involve anyone famous, and none of the participants could be considered as real-deal gunslingers. Yet the result was a body count higher than most of the more well-known shootouts. The OK Corral, for example, I think there were, what, three wounded and three dead? Now, I mentioned Chris Schmucker earlier, the curator for the Harvey County Historical Museum there in Newton, Kansas. Her research and articles proved to be invaluable to me while preparing this episode. I always knew there was more to the story, and sure enough, thanks to Ms. Schmucker, my suspicions were validated. She has posted a series of articles on the museum's website that I'll link to in this episode's show notes. Lots of good, well-researched information on Hugh Anderson, as well as the mysterious Allegro, gunfighting question, and that duel that probably never happened. I highly recommend you checking out her stuff for further reading. Chris, if you're listening, thank you, thank you, thank you. Hard work like yours really helps an idiot like me to sound like I actually know what I'm talking about. And if your bosses are listening, tell them I said to give you a raise. Yeehaw! When the gambler made his way towards the hotel, he did so with a purpose, with a score to settle, one that was over a year in the making. You see, his brother had been killed, murdered, to hear some tell it, by a man of the law. And the gambler, usually not the vocal type, uncharacteristically let it be known that he intended to kill his brother's assassin on sight, badge or no badge. So, when the two men finally came face to face there in Trinidad, tensions were high, to say the least. The gambler, however, did not immediately draw his revolver. Guess he figured he'd size his opponent up first, maybe get a handle on what kind of cards he was holding. And believe it or not, the two men actually sat down together there at the Armijo boarding house for the better part of two hours. The exact details as to what was discussed, we can only speculate, but the story goes that when the duo emerged, they shook hands and simply went their separate ways. The gambler, when later pressed, would explain that he now had a better understanding of what had happened with his brother and that the matter was closed. And that's about all he had to say about that. You see, the gambler wasn't predisposed to idle chatter, nor was he inclined to making friends. Hell, the only real friends he'd ever had were his brother and his mama, and they was both dead and gone. So, as soon as he could, he drifted. Colorado, back down to New Mexico, places like Las Vegas and Silver City, over Arizona way to Tombstone, further east El Paso, never staying too long in one place, never putting down roots. And, as I alluded to, the gambler wasn't much given to loose talk, so when he did speak, his words had weight to him. At the time, he prevented the lynching of a fellow card sharp by the name of Doc Kane. Or another instance in yet another saloon where his calm words helped avert gunplay when the free flow of spirits caused things to get a little heated. Other than that, though, the gambler really didn't do much of note. At least nothing that would make the history books. He lived his life, as did many of his kind, silently and in the shadows not leaving a mark or desiring to do so. Still, though, things change, and not even a stoic gambler can halt the path of progress. 
was long before he even stopped wearing a gun, in public at least. He still went healed on occasion. Hell, you'd be a fool not to do so in the dark dives where he earned his keep. He just didn't make it so obvious. But time marches on, right? As the gambler grew older and grayer, the dusty streets were paved over, and the automobile replaced the horse and buggy. He witnessed the turn of the century, the invention of the aeroplane, the refrigerator, silent films, the radio. He watched as the broken young men returned from the Great War and observed the flappers of the Roaring Twenties, and he saw the beginnings of the Great Depression. But despite living through all that history, I gotta wonder how often, if ever, the gambler thought of his brother. I mean, he had to, right? One doesn't simply forget a shadow that large. And I can't help but to contemplate on whether or not the gambler wished he had said a few more words to his brother the last time they saw each other, decades prior, on that little ranch. You see, when the gambler's mother died, both he and his brother were abandoned by their stepfather. The boys, orphans, were then placed in separate homes. And the gambler, without much of a parental figure, unfortunately found his way to the dark side rather quickly. Started running errands in saloons and brothels as early as the age of 11. And by the time he had reached his teens, he had already learned how to spot a fish at the poker table and was even known to frequent the local opium dens. As such, when the smallpox outbreak occurred, it was probably a bit of a blessing. Got the young gambler out of town and onto a nearby ranch where he was able to enjoy a somewhat quieter life, however temporary. Working out in the fresh air, feeling the clean sun upon his face. Engaging in honest labor and sweating out the impurities, and hopefully, a few of the bad memories. And like I said, it was there on that little ranch on the Membrace River that he last saw his brother. The gambler and an acquaintance by the name of Chauncey Truesdale were milking a cow when they spotted three strangers approaching on horseback, two of which appeared to be Indians. Not leaving anything to chance, the gambler shucked his Winchester and levered around. A good gambler, you see, never relies on chance. That's for suckers. And our gambler, despite his faults, weren't no sucker. Thankfully, in this instance, his precautions were not necessary. Hold on now, don't you know your own brother? The gambler's prodigal sibling hollered as he galloped closer, a crooked grin on his peach fuzz-covered face. Gambler's brother always seemed to be smiling, even after all that had happened. The two would spend the night catching up there at the ranch, and as far as I know, that's the last time the gambler ever again saw one of his blood relatives, at least on this side of the veil. He'd eventually find his way to Denver, Colorado, where he'd settle, or should I say sink, continuing to eke out a living at the poker tables as well as any other odd jobs he could find, up to and including working as a cook and a bartender. A quote-unquote colorless figure, as one newspaperman would recall, an old relic that nobody paid much attention to, but I guess that's the way the gambler liked it. Shortly before his death, he'd be interviewed by the aforementioned reporter, Edwin Hoover, who described his subject as both friendless and cantankerous. And when a colleague pointed out just who the gambler's brother had been, the unimpressed newspaperman simply replied, Who cares? Who cares? <laughs> Not many, I suppose, including the gambler himself, or so it would seem. I mean, so efficient was he at playing things close to the vest that when he finally died at nearly 70 years of age, in the year 1930, nobody even came to claim his body. As such, the gambler's remains were handed over to the Colorado Medical School, who I'm sure had no idea who they had gotten their hands on. There's a report out there somewhere indicating that whatever remained of the gambler after being dissected and prodded was buried, but where he was laid to rest is anybody's guess. Kind of ironic considering that we don't even know where his much more famous brother is buried either, at least not the exact location. Two floods, one in 1889 and the other in 1904, took care of that washing away all the headstones in that particular cemetery and unceremoniously relocating quite a few cadavers in the process. 
And although some old-timers were called in to locate the precise location of the grave, they were relying on fallible memories. Sure, there's a tombstone there now, surrounded by a big iron cage to dissuade any would-be trophy hunters, but we don't know for sure who rests underneath it, despite the pleadings of more than a few who would love to start digging and find out. Not sure how I feel about that. Selfishly, I'd love to find out who's down there, but mostly I figure maybe it's better to let both the gambler and his brother rest, wherever they are. That said, I do tend to think, or at least hope, that the gambler's final chapter has yet to be written. That's kind of how history works, right? There's always new discoveries to be made. And I am confident that as time goes by, we'll eventually uncover new information regarding both he and his brother. And maybe even their mama too, that jolly Irish lady full of fun who died too soon. Far too soon. But not before delivering her two sons to the territory of New Mexico, where they'd both be shaped by times and circumstances that no mother could predict. One, Joseph, or Josie, as he was called as a child, would eventually become a gambler and live the long, obscure life I briefly covered, dying penniless there in Denver. His older brother Henry, however, was a much different story. His time on Earth was brief, but anything but boring. But you know that already, don't you? And you probably already know that the gambler's brother Henry went by many other names as well. A lot of people don't know that Billy the Kid had a brother, and a lot of people don't know he led such a, what I consider, interesting life. Full disclosure, I did exercise a little bit of creative license. But for the most part, it is factual, at least if the scant resources available on Joseph Antrim are to be believed. Joseph really was a gambler, really spent time in Tombstone and Silver City and Las Vegas and all those other places I mentioned. And he really did prevent both a lynching and a shooting. And yes, the word is he did vow to kill Pat Garrett. But when the two men sat down together, he changed his mind, saying that the matter was now settled. And boy, what I wouldn't give to have been a fly on the wall during that conversation. Unlike his older brother, there's no indication that Joseph Antrim was ever in a gunfight, although he was arrested and fined in Tombstone for engaging in a bout of fisticuffs with a hotel porter. Still, though, considering the places he plied his trade in the late 1870s and the decade that followed, I think it's safe to say that our gambler witnessed more than his fair share of excitement. I'm sure there were quite a few hair-raising moments, and I'm positive he brushed shoulders with much more notorious characters. I mean, the dude was residing in Las Vegas, New Mexico at the same time as Doc Holliday, Hoodoo Brown, Dave Rudaball, and Mysterious Dave Mather, just to name a few. Now, as far as Joseph being a loner, friendless, and cantankerous and all that, numerous sources claim that the man never married or had children, and that he was nothing like his outgoing, charismatic brother. However, it does appear that Joseph possibly could have taken a brief time out at being a bachelor around the age of 28. Shout out to Stig Osgard for this next bit of information. According to him, a Joseph Antrim and a Jenny Stone tied the knot in Pueblo in December of 1891. Mr. Oscar's article, which I'll link to in this episode's show notes, continues as follows. Quote, At any rate, the marriage was not a successful one. And on February 25th, 1894, Joseph and Jenny were involved in a serious confrontation, which led to Joseph's arrest for kidnapping. According to the Rocky Mountain News of April 5th, 1894, Joseph, concerned about the disreputable surroundings in which his stepson Claude was being kept by his mother, went to Pueblo from Denver and abducted the child. Then he went back to Denver and enrolled the child in a private school. Jenny Antrim, in turn, swore out a warrant charging Joseph with kidnapping her child. Joseph, in response, said that his wife had refused to reform and was not a proper person to have custody of the boy. End quote. Now, I found this intriguing. 
that bit at the beginning of my story about Joseph the Gambler working in saloons at the age of 11 and spending time in opium dens in his teens, that's all true as well. And you and me both know that that's not the ideal setting for a child. Joseph, lacking both parents, was forced to grow up far too soon in one of the roughest environments imaginable. And while I'm sure those sporting gals and the high rollers and the bartenders were nice enough to young Joseph, that's still no place for a kid. I got to imagine that Joseph the adult didn't like seeing the same thing happening to his stepson or former stepson, and he made moves to put the youngster back on the right path. If I'm correct in this assumption, and I'll admit it is an assumption, then I think it's commendable. It says a lot more about our gambler, who he really was, than that damn reporter did. Speaking of which, how frustrating is that? Here that newspaper man had a living source of history right in front of him, a source who, if he were somehow alive today, would be pestered nonstop by historians and journalists, his every word recorded and archived. Obviously, there's the fact he was Billy the Kid's brother. That alone is reason enough. He could have filled in so many blanks. Bob Bowes Bell of True West Magazine had this to say, quote, Billy aficionados around the world would sincerely like to get their hands on Mr. Hoover's neck and wring it good. With the death of Joseph McCarty Antrim, the door closed probably forever on the answers to so many burning questions. End quote. But it's not just that. Joe Antrim was one of the last of the breed of men who could tell you how it felt to walk the streets of Tombstone, back when it was filled to the brim with men who just as soon as shoot you as look at you. He knew what it was like to ride the high desert when there was still a very real threat of losing one's scalp. And although he was no shootist, he surely, to quote the great Guy Clark, remembered the smell of the black powder smoke and the stand in the street at the turn of a joke. Joseph posted his blinds and antes and beer joints that were frequented by some of the most notorious killers the West had ever known, and he outlived all of them. Yet, in his own time, nobody cared. Which, I guess, is a good reminder that history is all around us, even now, and with each generation's passing, more and more stories will be lost forever. Here's a little something to ponder. When Joe died in 1930, he was a lot younger than most present-day veterans of the Vietnam War. That's how little time had passed between the days of the Wild West and the start of the Great Depression. And as of this recording, we've only got around 200,000 veterans of the Second World War still alive. But hell, if a man was 19 years old on D-Day, he'd be 97 right now. According to the National World War II Museum, we lose an average of 234 veterans each day. Veterans of the Second World War. You do the math. I mean, it won't be long until there's nobody left to tell us how cold it felt in Bastion or what it was like when those gates dropped on Omaha Beach. Thankfully, we're a little bit better nowadays at collecting and preserving these stories, but I'll say it yet again, man. If you've got a grandparent or a great-grandparent still alive, sit them down and talk to them, interview them, record it even if you just use the voice recorder on your cell phone. They've got stories to tell. And one of these days when you're old and boring, you're going to wish you had those stories to look back on. All right, I'm rambling now. Uh, as far as Joseph Antrim goes, there's honestly not that much information. I can find no details on the lynching he prevented other than it happened in Silver City. A few months following that, the story goes that he made a fellow gambler by the name of Joe Silks holster his revolver when things got tense, thus avoiding bloodshed. I couldn't find anything else about that. Uh, the census records as well on Antrim are scant, and thanks to the horrible butchering of his last name and the miscalculations on his birth year, he's a hard man to track. The last census I could find on him, 1920, he's employed as a cook and living in a boarding house in Denver at 1617 Larimer Street. And it's that same boarding house that's listed as Joseph's place of residence a decade later on his death certificate. 
Now, you know, I looked up this address on Google Maps because I'm weird like that. And while there's no longer a 1617 Larimer Street, there is a 32-story high-rise at 1625 Larimer called the Barclay Towers, taking up the area where that boarding house used to be. And I got to admit, the condos there at the Barclay Towers are pretty fancy. But for the minimum price of half a million dollars, I guess they should be. Floor-to-ceiling windows, a 24-hour concierge, heated pool, and a spa, not to mention a fitness center. Now, for someone like me, Knowing that I was living somewhere where a guy like Joseph Antrim lived, I would find that pretty cool. Not half a million dollars cool, but still cool. I'm willing to bet, though, that the residents there at Barclay in downtown Denver would have the same reaction to Joseph as did that newspaperman. Who cares? Well, Joseph Antrim, I care, for whatever that's worth. Yeehaw! Imagine for a second that you're a young immigrant lured to a foreign land with hopes of creating a better life for yourself and your family. Upon arrival, however, things don't turn out quite like you dreamed, and those in power decide to take everything from you that you hold dear. Your land is stolen, your brother murdered by so-called vigilantes without benefit of a trial, and you yourself tied up, horse-whipped, and forced to watch your beautiful wife beaten and raped. Raped to the point that she would die in your arms shortly thereafter. Sounds like a nightmare. I imagine most of us under similar circumstances would be looking for revenge. And according to legend, vengeance is exactly what the fabled bandit Joaquin Murrieta exacted. Story goes that he waited till nightfall, slid into the camp of his tormentors, dressed all in black. Dispatched one of them with a blade, silently chopping up the body and leaving the dismembered limbs scattered around camp to be found in the morning. And the next night he repeated this action, and again the night after that. Once Joaquin's immediate thirst for retribution was satisfied, he moved on to other such men, the type who preyed upon his people. He soon formed a group of like-minded compadres who dedicated their lives to protecting the innocent, robbing from the rich and righting various wrongs. A compelling story that is said to have been the real-life inspiration behind Zorro, possibly even Batman, a tale found repeated all over the World Wide Web. The only problem is, it's mostly not true. Historian Susan Lee Johnson summed it up best when she wrote, quote, So many tales have grown around Marietta that it's hard to disentangle the fabulous from the factual, end quote. And hard is an understatement. I knew I'd have my work cut out for me with Marietta, but damn it, I'm a man of the people and I aim to please, so here we are. Who was Joaquin Marietta? I mean, who was he really? Why is there so much misinformation about the man? Was he a freedom fighter, a righteous avenger of injustice, or simply a bloodthirsty bandit who preyed upon the weak? How badly will I butcher any Spanish names that I attempt to pronounce? We're going deep into the heart of California on this one in an attempt to hopefully set the record straight. Me llamo es Yash and estás escuchando the Wild West Extravaganza. <laughs> The problem with separating fact from fiction when it comes to Joaquin Murrieta mostly originates with one man, a guy by the name of John Roland Ridge. A member of the Cherokee Nation, Ridge went on a lamb in 1849 after killing a man in, I believe, Arkansas. Hit out in the California gold fields and tried his hand at mining. Didn't suit him, so he started writing poetry, essays, and eventually novels. Matter of fact, Ridge is considered by many as America's first indigenous novelist. And one of his books, his first and probably his most popular, was titled The Life and Adventures of Joaquin Marietta, the Celebrated California Bandit, published in 1854, a year after the notorious outlaw's alleged death. 
The book is still available on Amazon, and the blurb in one edition reads, in part, as follows. Quote, the first novel to feature a Mexican-American hero, an adventure tale about Mexicans rising up against U.S. rule in California based on the real-life bandit who inspired the creation of Zorro, the Lone Ranger, and Batman. The Life and Adventures of Joaquin Murrieta tells the story of Gold Rush-era Mexican immigrant Joaquin Murrieta, whose efforts to find fortune and happiness are thwarted by white settlers who murder his family and drive him off his land. In retaliation, Marietta organizes a band of more than 2,000 outlaws, including the sadistic Three-Finger Jack, who take revenge by murdering, stealing horses, and robbing miners, all with the ultimate goal of reconquering California, end quote. Now, Mr. Ridge lived in California at the time that Marietta was active. He likely heard many a story and rumor about the bandit and used newspaper articles, as well as his own writer's imagination, to spice things up. I mean, you don't have to be no genius to deduce there weren't no gangs consistent of 2,000 outlaws. And following the publication of his novel, Ridge had plenty of help making things even spicier. In just a few years after its release, The Life and Adventures of Joaquin Marietta was plagiarized by the California Police Gazette, with a different title and several editorial changes. It was in this version that Joaquin's wife was killed after being violated. This appropriation was soon translated to Spanish, and in no time flat, it became quite the bestseller in Spain, where it was plagiarized yet again by the dadgum French. From there, the novel was translated back into Spanish and distributed in Chile, where it became so popular that the Chileans actually erected a statue dedicated to this quote-unquote brave fighter of injustice. Keep in mind that each time this son of a bitch is copied, it's also somewhat altered, like a big game of telephone. The Spanish then copied the Chilean version, again, this time calling it El Caballero Chileano, before the Mexicans created their own version, finally turning Marietta back into a Mexican. There were poems, songs, even dime novels dedicated to the now mythical bandit. Toss in the fact that there were other criminals in the same region at the same time who were also named Joaquin, and you got yourself a legend. A legend that doesn't necessarily resemble the man on whom it was originally based. Even a legit historian got in on the trade, Kind of. Herbert Howe Bancroft used Ridge's third edition of The Life and Adventures of Joaquin Marietta as a primary source when he wrote his History of California. Or at least somebody did. After Bancroft's death, it was determined that much of his work had, in fact, been written by somebody else. According to the Salt Lake Tribune in 1893, Bancroft was a, quote, purloiner of other people's brains. When it comes to history, facts do matter. Believe it or not, I never start off one of these episodes looking to debunk a legend. My only goal is to tell the story as accurately as possible and hopefully an entertaining manner. But if there's one thing I've learned when it comes to Old West history, it's that the legends oftentimes rarely line up with the truth. I'm getting ahead of myself. As usual, to understand our subject, Joaquin Murrieta, we gotta take a look at where he came from and the environment to help forge him. As you probably already know, California was a territory of Spain and then Mexico before finally being ceded to the United States in 1848 following the Mexican-American War and the Treaty of Hidalgo. The land acquisition just so happened to coincide with gold being discovered at Sutter's Mill in present-day El Dorado County, a discovery that saw a huge influx of migration the following year, 1849, known as the Great California Gold Rush. And yeah, that's where we get the term 49ers. Just to give you an idea how many people were flocking to California, in the spring of 1848, the state boasted a population of just a little over 150,000 people, most of which were Native Americans. Of the rest, about 6,500 were of Spanish or Mexican descent, leaving just a few hundred non-Native Americans, gringos. Skip ahead, not even two years later, and that non-Native white population soared to over 100,000. By the mid-1850s, there were more than 300,000 new arrivals. 
It wasn't just Americans from back east rushing to California either. By 1852, there were 25,000 immigrants from China alone, not to mention Europeans of all stripes, even filthy, drunk, and criminally predisposed Australians. And of course, you had plenty of Mexicans coming up to the southern border ready to try their luck at the gold diggings as well, one of which was today's subject, Joaquin Murrieta. Ah, yes, now we can get into the real man, as much as we can, at least with the scant records available. Marietta appears to have been born in Sonora, Mexico in 1830 to parents Joaquin and Rosalia. And if you look at a map of Mexico, Sonora is going to be in the northwest portion, directly south of Arizona. At one point, Mexico's largest state, Sonora would lose about 13,000 square miles following the Treaty of Hildago and an additional 29,000 with the Gadsden Purchase. It would also be left largely in economic ruin following the Mexican-American War. Got to imagine Joaquin and his family probably weren't too well off following the conflict. Most average people in Sonora weren't. Once gold was discovered in California, it's no wonder they began flocking north in droves seeking a better life. But Marietta would not make the journey alone. He got married young while still a teenager to a girl named Rosa Feliz. And it was with her brothers, Claudio Reyes and Jesus, along with his own brother Jesus, that Joaquin would migrate. This is where I make my obligatory apology for butchering the Spanish language. Got a lot of Hispanic names to pronounce on this episode, and I'm probably going to flub each and every one of them. Despite being born and raised in Texas, and despite knowing a little bit of the lingo, my mouth just doesn't work like it's supposed to. So my apologies in advance. Compromiso. Alright, so, it appears Marietta and company all initially settled in the town of Sonora, California. That right there tells you how many would-be miners were coming up out of Sonora, Mexico alone. They actually formed their own town, which still stands, by the way. Home to nearly 6,000 souls, Sonora, California is about 130 miles west of San Francisco, not too far from Yosemite. Looks like upon arrival, Rosa's older brother Claudio took up work for one of the many gringo mine operations in the area, while Joaquin and his bride headed east to Contra Costa County, where he may have worked as a Baquero or a Mestanero, Mustanger. And I say may because there just isn't a whole lot of hard evidence for a lot of Joaquin's life. As always, do your own research and please feel free to let me know if I get anything wrong. Now, unfortunately, Marietta's brother-in-law, Claudio, would get himself arrested and charged with stealing another man's gold. He got locked up in Stockton, but was able to escape because, well, jails were pretty crappy back in those days. And following this escape, Claudio Feliz would organize his own gang of bandits. First known attack occurred on December 5th, 1850, when they raided the ranch of John Marsh, no relation to Stan, in Contra Costa County. One man, a visitor to the ranch, was actually murdered during this strike. Bastard rode him down, shot him, and then lanced him. A little over a week later, this same bunch struck the ranch at Digby Smith near San Jose. And boy, were they feeling bloody. Their victims were tied up, murdered by having their heads bashed in, and then dumped to the ranch house, which was set on fire. The remains found still smoldering. Moving onward to February of 1851, once again, near San Jose, Claudio Feliz and his band of merry murderers attacked the ranch of Anastasio Chaboya. Only this time, they weren't so lucky. Chaboya, an old-school Californio, wasn't about to let no damn Sonoran cave his head in. Evidently, his vaqueros rode for the brand because they repelled Claudio's attack in no time flats, and he and his men scurrying for the hills. By the way, Californio is a term you'll hear me use a few more times on this episode. Uh, they were descendants of the original Spanish colonists there in California. They had that old money. Many of them wielded profound influence, and they owned a lot of land. They would have had very little in common with a poor immigrant like Claudio or Joaquin, other than sharing a common language. We'll talk some more about the Californios coming up in a bit. 
After that failed raid, the Feliz gang set up shop in the foothills of the Sierras and started robbing lone travelers, anyone who appeared to be carrying more gold than firearms. And more often than not, they left their victims dead. Now, I'm not sure if Joaquin participated in any of the criminal activity I just described, but evidently he would join the gang at some point in 1851. And by this time, the bandits had grown pretty vicious. They were killing people left and right and not being too discriminatory as to who their victims were. Make no mistake about it, they would not only target well-to-do Californios or gringo miners, but anyone that they saw as an easy target. Black, brown, white, poor Chinese especially were targeted due to them often traveling with no weapons as well as not having any formal protection under the law. Pressure began mounting and Joaquin wisely began distancing himself, either by design or just dumb luck. That and he had him a little side piece over in Los Angeles by the name of Anna Benitez. Turns out he was visiting her when his brother-in-law finally met his end. Claudio made two mistakes. Well, three, I guess. Uh, just being a damn murdering thief was his first blunder. He also began targeting more of the well-to-do Californios, and they quickly tired of his antics. And finally, mistake number three, Claudio left one too many witnesses alive. He lost what little support he had among the locals when it came out that he was targeting his fellow Hispanics. A victim was able to escape and name him to authorities, and it weren't too long before he, along with several members of his gang, were cornered and gunned down. What was left of the group, including little brother Reyes Feliz, soon came under the leadership of Joaquin Marietta, who was temporarily busy, quote-unquote, keeping company with Senorita Benitez over in sunny Los Angeles. Once again, I'd like to stress that there's just not much known Joaquin's early actions, especially as far as uh, how much honest work he was doing before he turned to crime. He would be mentioned in newspapers. However, I found many conflicting stories as to which actual newspaper article first mentioned him by his full name. And there were other Joaquins operating at the time. So many, in fact, that their collective group would eventually come to be known as the Five Joaquins. A lot of their exploits sort of got mixed in together. That said, as early as January of 1852, a horse thief by the name of Theodore Vasquez implicated Marietta. Theodore confessed that Joaquin was one of a dozen Sonoran youth who would steal mules and horses from San Jose, sell them in Marysville, and then blow all the proceeds playing Monty. Evidently, young Marietta loved to gamble. A few months following this confession, a posse confronted a band of horse thieves near Willow Springs, California, about 90 miles north of L.A. A gunfight ensued, during which a posse member was shot and killed. A few weeks later, a young man named Marietta was arrested and charged with this murder. Was this our Marietta? Possibly, but we'll probably never know. Uh, the mystery Mexican was to be summarily dealt with, a.k.a. lynched without any hint of a legal trial, but he escaped before they could string him up. We get all the way to May of 1852 before we're pretty confident in knowing what Marietta was up to. This was maybe six to eight months after Claudia was killed. By the way, notice how I failed to mention anything concerning Joaquin having his gold mine stolen or his wife raped and murdered. That's because there's no historical basis for any of that, as far as I could find. And as far as I know, Marietta's wife, Rosa, is still alive and well at this point. Was Joaquin the victim of racial injustice prior to 1852? Probably. We'll get to that soon enough. But there is no indication that I can find that there was some dramatic, horrible atrocity that pushed the young man to a life of uh, banditry. Okay, so May of 1852, Joaquin, operating with a gang that included his 15-year-old brother-in-law, Reyes, struck the Corona Ranch in Stanislaus County, making off with about 20 head of horses. The bandits then headed north a couple hundred miles before having the misfortune of being overtaken by a band of Tejon natives under Chief Jose Zapatero. They let Marietta and his group go with their lives, but not before tying them up, relieving them of their stolen horses and clothing. Luckily, the bandits were able to loosen their bindings and hoof it on foot 
in their damn birthday suits before the pursuing posse made an appearance. By the way, not only did they have a posse after them looking to get back those stolen horses, but they also had a bounty hunter on their trail by the name of Harry Love. And this guy right here, ooh boy, where to start with Harry Love? Let's just say in addition to having a name straight from a late 1970s porno, dude even had a sweet porn stash along with a Ron Jeremy haircut. Seriously, Google the man. Quick search to turn up one of my favorite Old West photos of all time. You got Harry Love in the center, flanked by two other California Rangers. All three of them appear to be slightly wasted after a night on the town, yet their hair is so perfectly, uh, what's the word, permed? I mean, your wife wishes she had curls like Harry Love, and especially the man to his direct right. These guys are exactly what you'd expect the California version of the Texas Rangers to look like, with just an extra scoop of fabulous on top. Now, despite appearances, Harry or Mr. Love, whichever you prefer, was the real deal. Born in Vermont in 1810, Love turned to the high seas as a teenager and eventually found his way to Texas, where he possibly took up with the Texas Rangers. I think him serving with the early Rangers is likely. I just wasn't able to find definitive proof. He did for sure participate in the Mexican-American War, serving with a group of Alabama volunteers in the capacity of a courier and express rider, a job that he evidently excelled at. Following the hostilities, Love would do a bit of exploring along the Rio Grande, during which time he had his fair share of skirmishes with the indigenous. And then, of course, when gold got discovered out west, he headed to California, just like Joaquin Murrieta. Now, Harry wasn't worth a damn as a miner, but he soon cultivated a reputation as a tough man with a gun. Became a deputy sheriff for a bit in Santa Barbara before turning to a more lucrative career as a manhunter. And like I said, Marietta and Feliz were able to elude both the posse and Harry Love, but fellow gang member Pedro Gonzalez wouldn't be so fortunate. Love captured the man alive, but he wouldn't stay that way for long. The Los Angeles Star would report the following of the incident. Quote, the prisoner, being on foot, complained of fatigue and made several ineffectual attempts to escape. When about eight miles this side of the river, he complained of thirst and pointing to a ravine near at hand, told his conductor that there was plenty of water a little ways up. Accordingly, Mr. Love dismounted and proceeded with the man till they came to a small clump of bushes. When the prisoner darted forward into them and would have made his escape, Mr. Love's spurs prevented him from giving chase, but the latter, endeavoring to knock him down with his pistol, accidentally discharged it and shot him through the head, killing him instantly. End quote. So there you have it. Bounty hunter Harry Love, air quotes, accidentally shot Gonzalez in the head. And if you believe it was an accident, I think George Strait has some oceanfront property you may be interested in. A lot of people got their heads accidentally ventilated back in them days. We'll talk more about Love in a bit, but I definitely pick up a lot of Rooster Cogburn type vibes from the guy. While a very tough and capable man, I'm going to go out on a limb and say he was more interested in collecting bounty than he was in the strict enforcement of the law or any sort of due process. Shortly after the death of Gonzalez, Joaquin and Reyes Feliz may have possibly been involved with the murder of one Joshua Bean, older brother of previous Wild West extravaganza subject, Judge Roy Bean. Please check out my episode on Judge Bean for more of a backstory, if you haven't already, link in the show notes. But the judge's brother, Joshua, was a pretty colorful guy himself. Veteran of the Mexican-American War and former Major General in the California State Militia, Joshua Bean was the last alcalde and the first U.S. mayor of San Diego, where he was so corrupt that he allegedly sold City Hall to himself. He moved to L.A. in 1851, opened up a saloon called the Headquarters, and took into messing around with women he shouldn't be messing around with, a common defect among the Bean clan. As such, it was an argument over a woman that caused his demise. 
supposedly. I'll leave it up to you to figure out the truth of the matter. I just didn't want to spend too much time on this one incident. But at least one source claims that Joshua got into a drunken argument with his teenage wife. The young lady, possibly as young as 13, had very recently given birth and as such wasn't interested in indulging Bean with his marital urges. Joshua got verbally abusive. The girl fled with the baby he followed and they started fighting out in the street. Allegedly, Joaquin Marietta witnessed this and intervened, putting a bullet into Joshua's chest. He'd linger for about 24 hours before finally going under. Is that true? I don't know. Uh, there's another version that has a Scotsman or a Mexican Scotsman named Reed as the one that did beat in for messing with his woman. Whatever happened, the general consensus was there was a woman involved, Bean ended up dead, and there were repercussions. Joshua's brother, the soon-to-become-law west of the Pecos, Roy Bean, joined up with the Los Angeles Rangers, which were just a glorified vigilante committee. They started rounding up suspects, one of which was Muriel's brother-in-law, the 15- or 16-year-old Reyes Feliz. And whether or not he had anything to do with Bean's death, he would pay dearly. He and two other Mexicans were quickly found guilty and strung up. Their days of playing Monty in Los Angeles forever over. This was November of 1852. Unbeknownst to Joaquin Marietta, he'd only have another eight months to live his own self. And in those eight months, he would embark on one hell of a bloody crime spree, ultimately sealing his own fate. Now, I won't sit here and pretend like I know every single crime committed by Marietta and his gang. And there's certainly no way to verify the ones I'm about to mention. But to the best of my knowledge, here's a rundown of the events leading up to Joaquin's untimely demise. December of 1852. The miners and merchants of San Andreas, California, were enjoying some holiday festivities when Marietta and his band snuck in under the cover of a hailstorm, robbing several businesses and making off with a ton of loot and provisions. A few days later, and a few miles away, a lone traveler named Edward Cameron was shot to death by some Mexican bandits. Obviously, no way of proving this was the same bunch that robbed the town of San Andreas, but it's kind of a where there's smoke, there's a fire type situation. This is all up in Calaveras County, by the way. A guy named Henry Angel arrived in the area in 1849 and set up a trading post known as Angel's Camp, about 12 miles southeast of San Andreas and 16 miles northwest of Sonora, where Joaquin first settled when he arrived in California. There was also another settlement nearby called Yaqui Camp, I believe predominantly Hispanic, where the present-day town of Calaveritas is located. These various hamlets, especially Yaqui Camp, were frequented by Marietta, and you'll hear all these names again moving forward. All right, so following Edward Cameron's murder, Joaquin and his band either started or continued targeting the local Chinese laborers. As I previously touched on, the Chinese often went unarmed, and as such, they were easy pickings. And unfortunately, since they were Chinese, nobody else really cared whether or not they got robbed. It wasn't until Marietta started stealing horses from the white miners that people started paying attention. And it wasn't long before a sheriff from San Andreas, Charles Ellis, would be called in to deal with the problem. He and his posse tracked the bandits down and exchanged gunfire, but nobody on either side was hit, so they called it a day. I mean, come on. This is California. What do you expect? They probably had to go grab some acai bowls and slather themselves down with CBD oil. To be fair, Sheriff Ellis would pursue the bandits again when it was reported that Joaquin murdered a white man over in Yaqui Camp. The lawman and his deputies this time were successful in catching one of Marietta's associates, a guy by the name of Big Bill, and promptly hung him by the neck till he was dead, dead, dead. Still on the hunt, they made their way to Angel's Camp, where they captured and hung another bandit, this one implicating Joaquin as the gang's leader before he swung. 
And since Yaki camp was said to be one of Joaquin's main hideouts, the posse descended upon the settlement, burning it to the ground. Meanwhile, nearby Double Springs, the Calaveras County seat, passed an ordinance forcing all foreigners, or anybody who wasn't white, into exile. I'm not making that anyone who wasn't white distinction to prove my wokeness or anything. There were literally laws on the books in California at this time that made special provisions not to target foreigners from European countries. More on that later. At this point, it was just pure vigilante justice. With the area Hispanic and Chinese populations retreating to Stockton, the sheriff and his posse continued to track down and hang any Mexicans they thought were associated with Joaquin Marietta. While I'm sure they did indeed get their hands on some of the criminal element, I can't help but wonder if any innocent people got the news at this time as well. And that mob justice is truly a frightening thing. Believe it or not, that might be my main takeaway from all the shit I've learned doing this podcast. It's a theme central to the Old West, vigilante justice. And I get it. Oftentimes there was no formal law. Citizens, regular people, farmers, ranchers, miners. They had to group together and sometimes take the law into their own hands. That's to be expected. I mean, if we nowadays experience some sort of breakdown of society, we'd probably do the same things to protect ourselves and our family. If not, you'll have chaos and you'll continue to be victimized by two-legged wolves. The problem occurs when the mob becomes the very thing they're supposed to be protecting against, and boy, oh boy, does that tend to happen. I mean, when that crowd smells blood, it's a hard thing to stop. All right, I'm getting sidetracked. Despite being hunted, Joaquin and his bandits robbed several more Chinese travelers in early February of 1853. And then a few days later, they robbed even more Chinese, murdering three of them along with an unnamed American. Meanwhile, a deputy sheriff local there to Calaveras County raised a posse of his own. This dude's name was Charles A. Clark, with an E, also a former Texas Ranger and a veteran of the Battle of San Jacinto. He was able to get close enough to the bandits to witness them robbing even more Chinese miners and even exchange some ineffectual gunfire with them, but that's about it. While unsuccessful in stopping Joaquin, Clark did at least make good on heaping on enough additional pressure caused Marietta to leave the area. The bandit was next seen gambling in Tolomne, I think I'm pronouncing that probably wrong, Tolomne County, about 40 miles to the east, where he got so talkative that his boys had to escort him from the Monte table, fearing he'd share too much information. I think maybe some liquid libations were at play there. After a brief visit to Los Angeles, Marietta passed to the San Fernando Valley, where he stole a small herd of horses from General Don Andres Pico. A ballsy move indeed. If you're not familiar with Pico, he's another Californio who, in addition to being the brother of the former governor of Alta, California, was the commander of the California Lancers during the Mexican-American War. If you subscribe to my Patreon and you've heard my series on Kit Carson, I cover the Battle of San Pasqual. Well, Don Pico was there. He was the one leading the forces that were putting up such a fierce fight against Kit and Fremont. Needless to say, this wasn't the type of man you wanted to piss off. And I kind of think maybe Joaquin didn't realize who he was stealing from. One of Pico's vaqueros paid Marietta a visit and let him know he was treading on thin ice and bowing to reason, Joaquin smartly returned the majority of the stolen horses, around 40 of them, only keeping a handful that he said he and his men absolutely needed. Quick side note, Pico's cousin was another notorious California bandit active at the time, Solomon Pico. All right, so I think it's safe to say that the citizens of California were over Joaquin Marietta by this point. On May 11, 1853, the governor called for the creation of the California Rangers, a special unit whose only mission in life was to rein in the so-called five Joaquins. 
Basically, Joaquin Marietta and a few other guys he ran with, some of whom were also named Joaquin or just went by Joaquin. Very confusing when I was looking into it. Uh, there were two brothers, supposedly cousins of Marietta's, both nicknamed Ocho Moreno. One was actually named Joaquin, but the other kind of went by Joaquin on occasion. Another member of the five Joaquins was Joaquin Botella. He, like Marietta, was uh, from Sonora. Then you had Joaquin Carrillo, who supposedly was Marietta's stepbrother. I don't know. Makes me wonder if Joaquin just wasn't one popular-ass name back in the day. I mean, all these guys were young in their early 20s. Kind of had me thinking what a band of similar young outlaws be named if they were around nowadays. The Five Camdens. You know, the Five Bradens. Hey, be careful out there. The Five Coltons are on the loose. Anyway, evidently these various Joaquins, along with Marietta, were all listed by name in the legislative act that created the California Rangers. And who better to catch them than the man, the myth, old porn stash himself, Captain Harry Love. Yeah, that's right, Captain. Love was placed in charge of these newly formed rangers, and he promptly filled their ranks with a motley crew of 20 hardened men. All right, so I found two rosters, uh, one compiled by Henry Rollin Ridge, and the other by a man named William James Howard, who was actually a member and accompanied Captain Love in pursuit of Marietta. I will leave the link to these rosters in the show notes so you can compare the two, maybe look for a few familiar names. I do lean on trusting Howard's list more, but I've read his eyewitness accounts and he seems to be full of shit about half the time himself, so who knows. Nevertheless, I will share some of his observations. Of the Rangers, Howard said that they, quote, had the law in their hands and could hang, burn, or crucify as they pleased. Under the circumstances, it was necessary to have men with courage and good judgment. They were all dead shots with either rifle or revolver, and not one of them knew the meaning of the word fear. Naturally, all were familiar with the hardships of border life, which implied a great deal in view of the measures that had to be adopted to put a stop to the reign of terror, then in full force. End quote. He also left us with the following tantalizing details as to what the men carried, saying, quote, These old pioneers did not bother much with cooking utensils. A tin cup, a tin plate, Bowie knife, sugar spoons, individual coffee can represented a complete outfit. Whenever they obtained meat, it was cooked over the fire on forked sticks, and bread was baked in the same way, while potatoes were roasted in the hot ashes. All frontiersmen understood this phase of the situation and can appreciate the importance of packing as little weight as possible in a manhunt of this character. The firearms consisted of old-fashioned muzzle-loading guns of every variety, and each man carried a Colt's Navy six-shooter. The Rangers were operating in a comparatively arid region, and as activities began in midsummer, the above equipment was considered adequate for all practical purposes. End quote. So there you have it. That's the kind of stuff right there that fascinates me. Everyday things are the tools of the trade that such men carried. Good thing they were traveling light, too, since they'd be on the hunt for probably longer than they expected. Matter of fact, for the first couple of months, they were pretty much drawing blanks. Evidently, Joaquin smelled trouble in the air, and he and his bunch went to hole. Captain Harry Love was determined, however, and he soon caught him a break. Someone tipped him off as to the whereabouts of Joaquin's remaining brother-in-law, Jesus Feliz. Young Jesus was located, arrested, and promised that if he'd spill the beans on Marietta's location, they'd let him go. And he agreed. Now, if you're of the geographical bent, I believe at this point the Rangers weren't too far from San Juan Bautista. Upon apprehending Senor Feliz, Harry and the boys rode south for the Salinas Valley. This was just a ruse, however, as Harry Love didn't get to be a captain by being a dummy. He was hoping if anybody was watching, they'd assume he was going in the wrong direction. 
Later that night, the Rangers backtracked and headed southeast, first to the San Benito Valley and then through the Diablo Range, almost kind of parallel and to the west of present-day Highway 5. Finally, they came upon their destination, the Arroyo de Cantua, or the Cantua Canyon, a.k.a. the super-secret hideout of Joaquin Marietta, very near where the town of Coalingua now stands. And almost immediately, a huge herd of several hundred horses came into view, many of which were likely stolen by Marietta and the boys and many that were just actually wild, all mixed in together and being looked after by a force of about 80 men. These were Mestineros, that particular breed of vaquero that specialized in catching and breaking wild mustangs. Now, they were just working boys, but you better believe they knew where Joaquin was. Harry Love pulled the rangers back for a couple of days just to observe, and it wasn't long before the Mestineros broke camp. Traveling at night and into the early morning, Captain Love soon located another small camp to the south of Pinocha Pass. Yeah, Pinocha Pass. If you're familiar with the Spanish language, you probably know the meaning of Pinocha. Growing up in Texas, you're going to learn that particular word probably around the age of seven or eight, no matter your native tongue. And if you don't know what it means, well, let's just say I found it amusing that old porn stash Harry Love was about to penetrate Pinocha Pass. All right. So, uh, yeah, that small camp that Ranger Love located was indeed Joaquin's camp, and he and the boys almost made it too easy for the lawmen. Per usual, there are a few versions as to what happened. The Rangers probably took a couple of lookouts into custody, as is claimed in one account. That's also consistent with other reports that have the Rangers arresting a few of the bandits, and it helps explain why they were able to come upon Joaquin and the remaining outlaws unaware. I'm also not sure how many bandits there were total, but it looks like anywhere between just six to eight. And despite the varying accounts, they all seem to agree that Joaquin was able to escape the initial attack, possibly yelling out every man for himself when doing so. While attempting to race his pony across a creek, Rangers John White and Bill Henderson both fired, hitting Marietta in the small of his back and knocking him out of the saddle. Down but not out, the bandit was able to rise and take off on foot, just not fast enough. Ranger Henderson fired again, this time striking Joaquin in the chest. Staring up at his killers, Marietta's last words were, No tearing mas, estoy muerta. Stop shooting, I'm already dead. The other version of Joaquin's final moments has only Ranger John White pursuing him, with Marietta hanging off the side of his horse, Comanche style. White closed the distance and was able to get off around, striking Joaquin in the hand that he was using to hold on to the horse's mane. Upon spilling to the ground, the wounded bandit held up his hand and surrendered. And wouldn't you know it, just as Ranger White exclaimed, I arrest you, some of the other boys just rode up and riddled Joaquin with bullets. As far as the other bandits go, once again, they're different accounts. Uh, one source claimed three total were killed. Another says four killed and two captured. Of those captured, one drowned while trying to escape, and one later confessed to his crimes and was then strung up. And as far as I can tell, no California Rangers were killed, although Harry Love is said to have gotten his face grazed by a bullet. Of the dead, I only know of two for a fact. Joaquin Murrieta and his trusted Lieutenant Three Finger Jack. Now, Mr. Three Fingers, his actual name was Manuel Garcia, but he did come upon his nickname Honest, seeing as how he only had three fingers on one hand, a hand that was quickly severed and kept as proof. You see, both he and Joaquin had a price on their heads, and the Rangers had to have some way of demonstrating that they got their men. So not only did they remove three fingers' telltale hand, but his head as well, and the head of Joaquin Marietta. Evidently, Garcia had a big gaping bullet wound in his skull, causing the rot to set in quickly, 
So they simply buried it somewhere near Fort Miller in present-day Fresno County. Good thing they had that hand, I guess. Joaquin's head, however, would be carefully placed in a jug of brandy for preservation, but no word as to what happened to the rest of his body. The head, originally used simply as proof that Joaquin was dead in order to collect the reward, was then taken on tour with Captain Love where he charged the public a buck per person to view it. The trophy eventually found its way to San Francisco where it was either destroyed or lost during the Great Earthquake of 1906. Now, if you do a Google search, you will find a picture of a head in a jar, supposedly Joaquin's. But I don't think it's a reliable photo. It looks too much like a movie prop. If it is real and you can tell me more about why you believe this is actually Joaquin's severed head, please email me, josh at wildwestextra.com. Now, before we go any further, there are stories that Joaquin Murrieta was not really killed that day, and that Captain Love simply cut the head off a random Mexican bandit or vaquero and claimed it was Joaquin. I suppose that's possible, but I doubt it. The head was paraded throughout various mining camps and towns where Joaquin was known. Furthermore, Don Pico, when retrieving more of his stolen horses, also positively ID'd it. All total, Captain Love was able to collect 17 affidavits of people who knew Joaquin, including a priest, and saying that the head did indeed belong to the bandit. And in the end, Harry Love got his reward. $6,000 was doled out by the state to he and his rangers. That's $227,763 in today's money, or two full tanks of unleaded gasoline. Now, I'm pretty sure Love got the biggest cut, but assuming that money was evenly spread out, you're looking at, adjusting for inflation, almost $11,000 per man. Not a bad payday, but considering it took them three months and it entailed putting themselves at considerable risk, I don't know, what do you think? I suppose the ultimate removal of a deadly menace who, had he lived, would have almost certainly killed more innocent people, was likely uh, worth the sacrifice. Even the Chinese community, which Murrieta mercilessly targeted, were said to have raised some money on behalf of Harry Love to show their gratitude. Whether that's actually true or not, no, that's a different story. Allegedly, allegedly, allegedly. Everything is alleged when it comes to this episode. Even that ranger I previously mentioned, William J. Howard, his personal recollections are just riddled with fantasy. He's the one that claimed Murrieta surrendered and was accidentally gunned down by the other rangers. He also claimed that one of the prisoners committed suicide by, quote, plunging under the water and holding to the ground beneath, thus defying the efforts of the rangers to save him. And the other prisoner was placed in a jail, but whoops, don't you know he somehow ended up found hung to death the next morning. Hate it when that happens. Look, maybe these two banditos who were captured deserve to die. But if you can't read between the lines here and see that Mr. Howard is being a little less than honest, once again, George Strait and me got some property to sell you. The California Rangers, their job now done, were disbanded. And Captain Harry Love used his proceeds to buy a nice piece of land in Santa Cruz County. He even got married to a widow woman named Mary Bennett. Unfortunately, the two just could not get along. They split up several times over the next decade until finally Mary moved out for good and sued Love for divorce, a suit she lost because she was a woman in the 19th century. Or maybe she was just a cunt. I don't know. Now, Love had him a run of bad luck. There was a fire at his place, a couple of floods. Believe it or not, he had an issue with squatters. All this coupled with a pretty serious drinking problem caused him to lose his land. His wife initially felt bad for him and allowed him to move into a tiny home on her property. Not the main house, however. Dude was not allowed there. But as time grew on, Mrs. Love grew very scared of Harry, and she even hired a bodyguard to protect her. 
a bodyguard who, I'm going to assume, was a well-built younger man. As you can imagine, Harry didn't much appreciate this, damn it. And one day he decided to confront this young stud of a man, rippling with muscles, who was hired to protect his dear wife. When the bodyguard, whose name I could not determine, so we're going to go with Chad, when Chad and Mrs. Love arrived home one day, they found Harry lounging on the ground in front of the main house where he absolutely was not allowed. Upon seeing this, Chad, with his young six-pack slightly covered with a dewy sweat, non-saggy balls, and perfectly spaced facial features, wasted no time in attempting to shush Harry away. Go on, get! But Harry Love had had enough. You can only push a man so far, right? Especially a once-celebrated ranger. As with everything else in this damn episode, there are different versions. One has Love's pistol accidentally going off as the two men began wrestling, and him shooting himself in the armpit. The other has Harry armed with a shotgun, as he and the bodyguard both up and up fire each other at the same time. The young man received a superficial birdshot wound to the face, and Harry received a bullet to the right arm above the elbow. Wherever the truth lies, we know Harry Love was wounded in one of his arms. This much is a fact. And it wasn't necessarily a fatal wound, but for whatever reason, the arm would have to come off. I guess it was beyond fixing, and amputation was called for. Regrettably, the sawbones that performed the operation miscalculated the amount of chloroform he needed to put Harry under. The wounded California Ranger went to sleep all right, and he never woke up. This occurred in Santa Clara, California on June 30th, 1868, and Harry Love was in his late 50s at the time of his death. All right, so I don't know about you, but I don't feel quite satisfied. There's just so much buildup over Joaquin Murrieta, you know, so much legend, so many ballads and stories, and you're telling me he was nothing more than a common bandit. Is there no truth at all behind that grand revenge story? Well, I found an excellent essay by the great John Bosnecker titled California Bandidos, Social Bandits or Sociopaths that sheds some much-needed light on the subject. It also gives a great context to the times and culture Joaquin was part of. And if you're not sure about the term social bandit, we can just go with Robin Hood. Okay, the so-called noble robber, the rebel, the outlaws who were victims of injustice and were forced into a life of banditry as a way to right various wrongs. All right, so Mr. Bosnecker writes the following, quote, The reasons for Hispanic peasant banditry are complex and seem to be closely tied to the causes of violent crime on the frontier. Crime and violence were commonplace in California during the 1850s. Homicide rates were much higher than those of today. Gold rush society was unsettled. Hordes of ambitious young men flocked to California, leaving behind their families, and most significantly, their mothers, sisters, wives, and sweethearts. The simple presence of women in a community exerts a strong, settling influence upon antisocial male behavior. This scarcity of women is perhaps the single most important root cause of violent crime on the Western frontier. The development of Colt's revolving pistol, a huge improvement over the old single-shot weapons, made it possible for every man to carry six-fold firepower in his holster. The rough ethic of that era, which required a man to withstand insults with deadly force and to never back down from a fight, coupled with the ready availability of Bowie knives, six-shooters, and liquor, was a recipe for carnage. With human life so cheap, it is little wonder that some men held little regard for property rights. Incidents of claim jumping, sluice robbing, highway robbery, and stock theft were common during the gold rush. Many young men who came to the mining frontier were by nature adventuresome and perhaps somewhat reckless. Most were consumed by gold fever, if not greed, and most did not strike it rich. 
The San Quentin prison registers in the California State Archives demonstrate that men of many races and nationalities turned to crime after 1850. At or near the bottom of the social heap were the poorest of the Hispanics. Bad blood between American and Mexican had been stirred up in the Mexican-American War, and many Anglos still looked upon Hispanics as the enemy. Racism, fueled by ignorance and religious bigotry, was the order of the day. Many Hispanics were driven from the mines, savaged by callous Anglos, and occasionally flogged and hanged without just cause by vigilantes. Denied a means by which to earn a living, it is not surprising that numerous Hispanics turned to robbery and stock theft. Although the plight of these Hispanics certainly deserves sympathy and understanding, the view that Joaquin Marietta, Salomon Pico, and Tiburcio Vasquez were social bandits or revolutionaries does not withstand close scrutiny. Each of them appears to have had a magnetic personality and a strong leadership qualities which attracted followers and supporters. Marietta, Pico, and Vasquez were not sociopaths. Undoubtedly, they had grievances against Anglo society. But the facts surrounding the careers of these three bandits demonstrate that they were more motivated by hopes of plunder and profit than by any wish to aid their fellow man. There is abundant evidence that they were opportunistic thieves who generally preyed upon innocent victims sometimes including fellow Hispanics, end quote. Sorry, I know that was long. I actually suggest reading the entire article. I'll link to it in the show notes. Mr. Bosnecker does a great job of dismantling the myth of the social bandit. Very, very good read, as are any of his books you may get your hands on. And basically, he's just hammering home what you've already likely picked up for your own listening to this episode. But I will expand further on some of the injustices that Hispanics and other minorities had to deal with there in California, during this time, if you'll indulge me. There was actually something called the Foreign Miners Tax Act that basically imposed a fine on any non-U.S. citizen who wanted to pan for gold. $20 a month, which is about 750 in today's money. Now, this wouldn't affect Hispanics living in California before the Treaty of Hidalgo, but immigrants like Joaquin Murrieta or the many Asians who came looking for a better life were affected. And it was the Chinese, believe it or not, who were the main target of the Foreign Miners Act. As the amount of available gold began to shrink, tensions rose and miners began fighting over available real estate. As such, violence against foreigners, in this case the term foreigner indicates anyone who wasn't white, began to rise. Just like Mr. Bosnecker wrote, there were beatings, rapes, and even murders. And vigilante justice, or so-called justice, ran rampant. Just to give you an idea of the mentality of that time against various races, the man who passed the foreign miners tax, then California Governor Peter Burnett, also at one point called for all blacks to leave the state or face a public flogging. And he made an exemption in the Foreign Miners Act waiving the fine for white foreigners. So if you were from Ireland or Scotland or France or, God forbid, Germany, you were in the clear. You're our type of foreigner. Got too much melanin in your skin? Well, you're shit out of luck. And of course, let's not forget California's insanely named Greaser Act whose official purpose was to, quote, punish vagrants, vagabonds, and dangerous and suspicious persons. But I don't guess I gotta tell you what group an anti-vagrancy law named the Greaser Act was targeting. Like it or not, California was at this point in history ruled by Anglo-Americans. They, the elite, and those gullible enough to believe that them in power actually cared for their interests, only tolerated people that looked and talked differently than them for a few reasons. Cheap labor, a servant class and a piece of exotic strange on occasion. I know, I know, there's a certain segment of our population here in the U.S. that despises hearing about these inconvenient facts. 
as if anything that doesn't portray America as a 100% shining beacon of equality chosen by a Christian God to let freedom ring is somehow akin to blasphemy. The United States of America is the greatest country on the face of this earth. No other place I'd rather live. Hell, I'd get thrown in jail for saying some of this shit in other countries. We've come very far in the past century and a half, and people are still flocking here in droves looking to improve their lives. This is a land of opportunity and freedom for the most part. At the same time, there's also been great injustices committed against other races by those in power, and it just so happens the ones in power here have historically been white. These two truths are not mutually exclusive. You already know this, I know. The only reason I bring it up is because anytime I say anything remotely in this vein, I'll invariably receive a few emails with people eager to point out other atrocities committed by other races, as if I'm somehow blaming them. But Josh, what about all the bad stuff the Mexicans did? What about the Spanish indentured servants? What about blah, 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 blah? We're talking about California in the 1850s. Maybe if I do an episode on Spanish colonialism, then I'll talk shit about them too. Matter of fact, I'm positive I will. This isn't a white versus brown versus black thing. It's a human being versus human being thing, and we humans are historically, without a doubt, some vicious fuckers. All that said, we have no idea whether or not Joaquin Marietta was ever specifically targeted in such a manner. I mean, you can assume he was subjected to some form of discrimination. And if by some miracle he wasn't, then he knew people who were. He and his fellow immigrants were secondhand citizens and, as an economically marginalized people, some of them turned to banditry. And it wasn't just Mexicans or Hispanics either, not in the Old West. Replace Joaquin Marietta with Jesse James or Rube Burrow or Sam Bass, and the legends and their mythical motivations are much the same. I mean, hell, switch out white California miners with northern carpetbaggers and Kansas redlegs, and you pretty much got the plot to the outlaw Josie Wells. The truth is, however, both Jesse James and Joaquin Marietta targeted innocent people, and they killed innocent people. And remember, Marietta wasn't shy about who he robbed. Many of his victims were Hispanic, and a whole bunch of them were Asians. Nobody has to bend their imagination to think there would be plenty of motivation for someone like Joaquin Marietta or any other persecuted group to go on some sort of noble vengeance quest. That said, in this particular case, there's just no proof as far as Marietta is concerned. The stories of Joaquin being some sort of grand avenger, dealing justice to the men who killed his wife and brother, targeting the rich Anglo miners, protecting the poor Mexican laborers, those, in lieu of any semblance of historical evidence, are just stories. Whereas what we know about Marietta, based on newspaper articles and eyewitness accounts, along with the testimony of his own compadres, is that he was an equal opportunity bandit who stole from the weak whether they be white, brown, yellow, or whatever shade you want to toss in. And if they were lucky, maybe they'd escape with their lives. Look, I'm fully cognizant of the idea that history is written by the victors. Is it possible that the historians got everything wrong and Joaquin was indeed some sort of hero? Yeah, I suppose. But you're gonna have to provide me some sort of proof. I'll be the first to admit that history is complicated and oftentimes you gotta sift through a lot of bullshit to find the truth. And that was especially the case here with Joaquin Marietta, and I'm still not sure we've gotten to the whole truth. At the end of the day, the evidence we're forced to rely on is pretty flawed. The folk hero aspect of Marietta was created after his death by many various authors and poets, by TV shows and movies, and by our own collective imaginations and our very American desire to see wrongs righted and injustices avenged. The Hispanic population of California endured many atrocities at the hands of Anglo-Americans. That is true. 
Joaquin Marietta, however, was simply a criminal with no righteous ulterior motive. But that's the way it goes. Like I touched on earlier, many an outlaw of the Old West of all ethnicities were considered to be righteous. You know, virtuous, misunderstood, victims. For the most part, they were just charismatic criminals, taking the easy way out. Hell, same goes for the lawmen. They were tough, and when needed, they could get mean, real mean. But were they upright paradigms of righteousness? Absolutely not. Mostly, they were simply criminals, too. Josh at WildWestExtra.com, if you got something you'd like to share with me about Joaquin Marietta, anything I didn't get to, and anything I got wrong, please email me. Okay, so now that I've dashed any hopes of Joaquin Marietta being some sort of hero, at least we can still say he was the inspiration behind Zorro, right? Eh, maybe. According to the Santa Barbara Historical Museum, Zorro creator Johnston McCulley was inspired by the exploits of bandits in California in the 1850s. Most notably, Solomon Pico, whose exploits pretty much mirrored those of Marietta's. Quote, The story of Solomon Pico soon passed into folklore, a man taking vengeance on those who wronged him, a guerrilla warrior fighting to save his homeland from an unscrupulous invader. It's likely Pico was protected from capture to a certain extent due to the growing tensions between the Californios and the American authorities. McCulley melded Pico's story and additional outlaw tales to create the character of Zorro. In deference to his 20th century American readers, he placed Zorro in Spanish California battling corrupt Spanish authorities rather than American. McCulley's stories of a highly romanticized pastoral Spanish California actually have their roots in a troubled transitional era of California history. End quote. And then there are several sources that claim Zorro wasn't even based on a Mexican at all, but an Irish Catholic named William Lamport. Born in the year 1611 and quite the adventurer, Lamport eventually found his way to Mexico where he attempted to lead local Native American and blacks in a revolt against their tyrannical overseers. He was unsuccessful and ultimately tried during the Inquisition and sentenced to be burned at the stake, but he chose to take his own life before they could make it official. Looks like Zorro's just a mix of many different people. Most of them, if real, led lives that were highly fictionalized after their deaths. As far as Marietta being the inspiration behind Batman, I'm not seeing any links other than maybe Zorro inspired Batman. And both Zorro and Batman were wealthy aristocrats with double identities, both of them committing their heroic deeds in secret. I don't know, man. If you want to continue to say Zorro was based on Joaquin Marietta as your go-to icebreaker at parties, far be it for me to stop you. Now with that out of the way, let's talk about the gold. I want to know where the gold at. Surely it wasn't all blown on fast women and Monty. And don't call me Shirley. Legend has it that Joaquin left a bit of treasure out there in the remote reaches of California. On one occasion, with a wagon full of ill-gotten gold, the outlaws were ambushed by a war party near Old Carrizo Stage Station, some 100 miles east of San Diego. To avoid losing their treasure to the hostiles, they cashed it under a rock ledge, hoping to return, but of course, Harry Love saw to that. Another story goes that Marietta buried some treasure near Hatcher Pass in Shasta County, California. And yet another, worth hundreds of thousands of dollars, is supposedly buried near Susanville, California, off Highway 36. Now, some of these locations, such as that old Carrizo stage station, look pretty remote. Might need a four-wheel drive and good supply of water and extra gasoline if you head that way. Turns out, though, you might not have to go any further than Los Angeles. You see, Hollywood wasn't always Hollywood. Before being purchased by a developer in the 1880s, it was ranch land. Ranch land that contained a hill in which Murrieta was rumored to have buried quite a bit of gold. 
and the land where the hill stood was bought by the Sisters of the Immaculate Heart in the early 1900s in order to build a school, but they eventually sold it to the American Film Institute. And many believe that the treasure is still buried there, deep in the ground under the American Film Institute at 2021 Northwestern Avenue, a mere three miles from the Hollywood sign. I don't know about all that. I think you can spend your whole life searching for Joaquin's gold and end up broke. The real treasure mine lies there in the movies. And if they made a movie on Joaquin Marietta, even if they went with the legend, they could cash in. Think about it. Quentin Tarantino directs it. We cast John Leguizamo as Joaquin, Samuel L. Jackson as Harry Love, toss in Danny Trejo and Selma Hayek's boobs, and you got yourself a box office hit. Maybe even hire Danny McBride as a narrator. You're welcome, Hollywood. One last thing on Marietta. Every summer in California's San Joaquin Valley for the last 40 or so years, there's been something called the Joaquin Marietta Ride. You can check out some videos on YouTube. Uh, I don't know how many people participate, but it looks like hundreds. Mostly all Hispanic. They're all on horseback. Many of the men in sombreros. A few of the women in traditional flowing dresses. And they ride something like 60 miles over the course of a couple of days. Looks like a lot of fun. Anyway, this trail ride was originally formed to draw attention to the plight of farm workers there in the valley, being forced from their homes or made to work in poor conditions. To them, the legend of Joaquin Marietta is an inspiration. He's a hero that they look to. And I'm not trying to take away anything from that with this episode. Trail ride looks badass, and I hope people continue to participate in it, and I hope they continue to fight for things that they hold dear. As one organizer put it, Quote, it's about community. Good for them. Lord knows here in Texas, we've got an event or two or a school or a dozen named after some not so savory characters whose reality and morality doesn't exactly live up to the hype. And that's about all I've got on my key Marietta. George Edgar Scarborough was born on January 12th, 1879 in McCulloch County, Texas. And if the name Scarborough rings a bell, that's likely due to Ed's daddy being George Adolphus Scarborough, the man who killed the man who killed John Wesley Harden. George Sr. spent decades working as a lawman, first as sheriff of Jones County, Texas, and then as a deputy U.S. marshal working out of El Paso. And it was there in El Paso in 1895 that George Scarborough was involved in the controversial killing of Martin Moroz. This in and of itself is an absolutely crazy story that I will go way more in depth on in the near future. But long story short, the notorious gunman, John Wesley Harden, allegedly paid Scarborough, along with the El Paso Chief of Police Jeff Milton, and possibly his constable, John Selman Sr., to kill Mr. Moroz. Just three weeks later, Selman would kill John Wesley Harden, and then, less than a year after that, Scarborough would gun down John Selman. George then headed over to New Mexico, where he went to work for the Grant County Cattlemen's Association. And in April of the year 1900, it was finally his turn to die by the gun as he attempted to apprehend a few remnants of the Wild Bunch. Which brings us back to his boy, Ed Scarborough. By the time Ed was just 18 years of age, he was saddling up and helping his father on these various manhunting expeditions. As such, by the time of George's death, the then 21-year-old Ed was already well on his way to becoming a distinguished lawman. Not only was he one of the first-ever Arizona Rangers, but he also tracked down and arrested Todd Carver, one of the men suspected of killing his daddy. And you know that must have felt good. Only thing is, Scarborough seems to have had a little bit of an ego problem. 
Despite being initially lauded by his peers, Ed was dismissed from the Rangers after just nine months due to his quote-unquote high-handed arrest tactics. That and his all-around hot-headedness. Hell, so volatile was Ed Scarborough that he even tried to draw down on his own Ranger captain, a guy by the name of Burt Mossman. Now, I think it goes without saying that the Arizona Rangers are far inferior to the Texas variety. Be that as it may, it still ain't no small thing making a Ranger captain over in the Grand Canyon State. And Captain Mossman, a legend in his own right, was about the last person that Ed should have tried to tangle with. Luckily for Scarborough, Mossman simply introduced his fist to the young lawman's face before Ed could clear leather. But things could have been much, much worse. Despite this much-needed attitude adjustment and his lack of employment as an Arizona Ranger, Scarborough would still continue working in law enforcement in various capacities. A career that nearly came to an end as he was tracking cattle thieves near New Mexico's Hatchita Mountains. Ed was asleep one evening when a damn skunk crawled up in his blankets and gave him a little love bite on the wrist. Hell of a way to wake up, right? Scarborough hops up out of his blanket in a panic, can't blame him there, and shakes the skunk loose, but it comes lunging back, causing Ed to fetch his pistol and open up fire. He misses, but I guess the flash and the bang was enough to make the skunk skedaddle. Momentarily, at least. Ed finally settles down enough to try to get some more shut-eye, and here comes the skunk again, launching a third assault. Luckily, this time Scarborough was ready, and he got a direct hit on Pepe Le Pew with his Winchester, and that was that. Still a nerve-wracking experience, right? Especially considering that there's really only one reason for a critter to act in such an aggressive manner. I'll give you a hint. It starts with an R, and it rhymes with scabies. Now, according to Google, the rabies vaccine did already exist at this time, although I was unable to determine how widely distributed or available it was, which may explain Scarborough's next course of action. The stricken lawman beat feet to the big city of El Paso, where he underwent a little something known as mad stone treatment. Now, this was completely new to me, but apparently mad stones, also known as basil or stones, can be found in the stomachs or intestines of cut and animals and were used in centuries past to draw poison out of bites or wounds. This is done by boiling the stones in sweet milk or sometimes alcohol and then applying it to the injury in question. Legend has it that once the stone is attached to a wound, it can't be pulled off. But once it absorbs the poison, it'll simply fall away on its own accord. I don't know about all that. Me personally, I get bit by a skunk, I'm going to the damn urgent care, okay? Not no damn El Paso Bruja. My skepticism aside, however, I do feel like I should point out that Ed did not die. And to be fair, I guess we don't know for sure that the skunk was rabid. I'm also not a doctor, and I'll admit complete ignorance as to whether or not it's possible for someone to get bitten by a rabid animal, only for the virus not to take effect. I'm sure that's happened somewhere at some time throughout history. What I do know is that even nowadays, despite Michael Scott's best efforts, some 60,000 people per year succumb to rabies. And there have been very, very few recorded cases of someone surviving without proper medical treatment. Statistically, if you get rabies and you do not get yourself some legit doctoring, you're as good as dead. And just like you heard me say, Scarborough didn't die. That being the case, his behavior does seem to have grown increasingly erratic following this incident, like the time he decided to get into a gunfight with a bicycle. It was March in 1904, and Scarborough was employed as a constable in Douglas, Arizona. 
And it's there on the streets of Douglas that Ed came face to face with his most formidable foe since that skunk, a young bicycle enthusiast named Rube Shields. It seems that Rube came riding into town one day and took to doing bicycle tricks in front of a growing and astonished crowd. And I guess Scarborough didn't much like bicycles, or he didn't like the idea of anyone other than him getting attention. Or maybe he was just looking for yet another excuse to throw his weight around, which, according to news articles from back in the day, does seem to be his M.O. Whatever the case, things started off mildly enough with Scarborough simply ordering shields to desist and move on. Rube wasn't having it, though, and bluntly told Ed not to bother him as he was in the process of attempting a rather difficult stunt. Oh boy, this casual defiance really pushes Scarborough over the edge. Not only does he bristle and tell Shields not to talk back, but then, just to emphasize his point, he goes ahead and pulls out his service revolver and starts blasting away at Rube's bike tires, laughing like a maniac while doing so. You would think Rube Shields would then scurry in fear, right? Negative. In fact, he does the exact opposite. Ducking his head down low, the young man began pedaling with all his might, straight ahead at the crazed constable Ed Scarborough. And before Ed could draw a good bead, bam! Rube slams right into him. Dismounting from his bike, which I can only assume was a little dented at this point, Shields proceeds to bend down and grab the stunned Scarborough by the throat, disarm him, and then, as one newspaper account put it, took his time and skillfully kicked Ed Scarborough into a state of utter submission. Now I'm a two-sides-of-the-story kind of guy. I always feel like that's the best way of viewing the world, right? Trying to see things from the other person's point of view. On one hand, I think we can all agree that bicyclists can be pretty damn annoying. I mean, yeah, I understand they have a right to be on the road just like the rest of us, and they're not only getting exercise, but they're also helping to reduce pollution in the process. I get that. Fine. Great. But do they need to look so damn ridiculous while doing so? I'm not saying it's okay to take a shot at somebody for any reason, much less for riding a bicycle, but I am saying that if you decide to take a bike on the damn freeway in your little tiny shorts and silly-looking helmet, you gotta at least expect a little aggression every now and then. On the other hand, I'm picking up on some real angry boomer get-off-my-lawn vibes from Ed Scarborough. It's like he all of a sudden became the Old West version of a mall cop who's irrationally angry over just the sight of a teenager enjoying himself on a skateboard. We obviously don't know the whole story. Maybe the kid was obstructing traffic or blocking the entrance to a local business, something like that. And maybe he shouldn't have smarted off. But I'm willing to bet that whatever Shields was doing on that bicycle most certainly did not justify a member of law enforcement opening up fire. And it looks like I'm not the only one who felt that way. Not only was Ed Scarborough arrested and fined, while Rube Shields got off completely scot-free, but Ed also got sacked from his job. According to the aforementioned news article, quote, Rube is now the hero of the hour and Ed goes around looking like a broken man with a secret sorrow. End quote. And sadly, that was just the beginning of Ed Scarborough's downward spiral. Out of work and looking to make a quick buck, Scarborough decided to hold up a restaurant over in Deming, New Mexico. That in and of itself is bad enough, right? I mean, the guy had dedicated his entire life to upholding and enforcing the law. And here he goes, throwing away whatever reputation he still had and doing the very thing he had always fought against. Ah, but it gets worse. Not only does Ed Scarborough rob that restaurant, making off with a whopping $24, but he does so in drag. 
wearing his girlfriend's dress. But wait, there's more. The genius then removes his cute little outfit and returns to the scene of the crime and orders lunch. Restaurant employees immediately recognize Ed's voice, and he soon found himself locked up behind bars yet again. Now, this incarceration would not last long. Ed was released on bail and was somewhat successful in fighting the case, but the man just could not manage to stay out of trouble. By 1909, Scarborough would be arrested for horse theft, and then, a few years later, he started feuding with Arizona rancher John Clifton over where to graze cattle, an argument that led to Scarborough killing Mr. Clifton right there in his front yard. Ed was arrested again, tried, convicted, and given life in the Arizona State Penitentiary, a sentence he commenced to undergoing on May 19, 1916, as inmate number 4787. And it's crazy to think about, you know, in just a few short years, this guy had gone from being a respected lawman, an Arizona Ranger, to a life destined behind bars, and he wasn't even 40 years old. To make matters worse, he had a wife and young daughter who now had to fend for themselves. But you know how that goes, right? Prison isn't exactly easy on a marriage, and a life sentence is a little too long to expect a woman to wait. As you can imagine, Ed soon received that dreaded Dear John letter. Seems his wife had fallen in love with another man, a railroad conductor by the name of Omar Ash. And Scarborough wasn't exactly thrilled at this new development, to say the least. Vowing revenge, Ed made it clear to all who'd listened that his new mission in life was to escape jail and kill both his wife and her new lover. And sure enough, after just one year and six days behind bars, Ed Scarborough busted out of that Arizona prison. Only thing is, despite his threats... He never did go after his ex-old lady and her new husband. Ed didn't exactly fade away into history, but he definitely spent the rest of his days lying low, and as far as I can tell, staying out of trouble. Word is that Scarborough crossed over into Old Mexico and took to ranching, and for the next 30 years, save for a few clandestine trips to California to see his aging mother, Ed simply kept his head down and tended to his cows. Now, Scarborough's mama passed away in 1949, and it's at that point that we lose all contact with the cross-dressing, bike-shooting, skunk-fighting ex-ranger. Ed would have only been in his mid-60s around that time, and as far as I'm aware, nobody knows where or when he died. Legend has it that if you're riding your bicycle at night and you get to smelling a skunk, you'd be best advised to turn around and pedal like hell in the opposite direction. And that's about all I've got on Ed Scarborough. Alfred Grinner Packer was born in Pennsylvania in January of 1842, not far from Pittsburgh. His father, James, a cabinet maker by trade, would relocate the family to Indiana shortly after, and it's there, in LaGrange County, that young Alfred would spend his formative years. As you'll soon see, however, Alfred Packer had a bit of a wanderlust. Upon turning 18 years of age, he moved out on his own and headed west for the land of crockpots, horrible accents, and Jesse Ventura also known as Minnesota. Now, despite finding steady work there as a shoemaker's apprentice, Alfred wouldn't stay in Minnesota all that long either. The nation was soon plunged into a bloody civil war, and at 20 years of age, Packer fulfilled his patriotic duty and enlisted with the 16th U.S. Infantry in April of 1862. As such, his first duty station was Camp Thomas, a training facility for Union troops outside of Columbus, Ohio. And it's here that Alfred did something I strongly recommend you do not do. He got his own name tattooed on his arm. Ugh, I know. 
And if that's not bad enough, the tattoo was spelled incorrectly. No regrets. Now, I'm not entirely sure who was at fault here, the tattoo artist or packer. But the fact remains, for the rest of Alfred's life, he'd have the name Alfred, as opposed to Alfred, inked on his arm. And this may be where some of the confusion as to the man's actual first name comes from. Go ahead and Google him. You'll see many sources, Wikipedia included, that list Packer's name as Alfred. According to author Harold Schechter, in his book Maneater, The Life and Legend of an American Cannibal, this misconception stems from that erroneous tattoo. He also posits that it's very uh, possible Alfred himself was unsure how to spell his own name as a younger man. Now, this was actually more common than you might think back in those days. Case in point, Alfred's sister, Melissa. She repeatedly misspelled her name as well. Later in life, Alfred would write many a letter, some of which I've seen copies of, and they are all signed Alfred, not Alfred. So unless he changed his name in his latter years, I'm going to go ahead and say that his actual real name was Alfred. All right, back to the story. After getting this regretful tattoo, private I can't spell my name Packers, next stop was to Camp Douglas, just south of Chicago. And this was not a very fun place to be, let me tell you. Uh, sometimes referred to as the Andersonville of the North, Camp Douglas was one of the largest POW camps of the Civil War. It's also where Alfred would contract typhoid fever, which, of course, is spread by eating or drinking food and or water contaminated with the feces of an infected person. This tells you all you need to know about the conditions there at Camp Douglas, right? Either that or Alfred was a dirty boy and he went ass to mouth, but much to my dismay, we have no way of knowing that for sure. When applying for government disability later in life, Alfred claimed that this typhoid affliction was due to, quote, constant and prolonged and unnecessary guard duty, end quote. He also blamed the typhoid for causing another physical malady that he'd suffer for the duration of his life, epilepsy. Ah, yes, Alfred Packer was epileptic. Now, epilepsy, aside from being a word that my mouth finds very hard to pronounce, is a neurological disorder marked by sudden recurrent episodes of sensory disturbance, loss of consciousness, or convulsions associated with abnormal electrical activity in the brain. It can be genetic, but most common causes seem to be low oxygen during birth, head injuries, brain tumors, or even just from infections like meningitis. Even abnormal levels of uh, sodium or blood sugar can cause it. In up to 70% of all cases, no cause can be determined. The only person I've ever personally known who was epileptic, I never actually saw her have a seizure, but according to her, things like uh, flashing lights could trigger it. Now, evidently, Alfred's case was much more extreme. Oh, and FYI, he was fibbing when he said that it was the typhoid or the guard duty that caused this epilepsy. In fact, he had suffered from these seizures since childhood. Fits, they uh, sometimes called him back in those days. And Alfred would have these so-called fits or seizures on a very regular basis, often to the point of passing out or losing consciousness. Not the greatest of conditions to have when attempting to fight a war, right? I don't think it's much of a surprise to learn that after just a few months of service, the young soldier would find himself medically discharged up at Fort Ontario in New York. And this was an honorable discharge. A doctor's note on the separation papers basically states that Alfred was unfit for duty due to his seizures, and this obviously wasn't something that he himself could control. Still, though, Packer was determined to serve. Gotta give him credit there. He'd enlist again six months later in June of 1863, this time with Company L of the 8th Ohio Cavalry. 
Uh, for any new listeners, I also struggle with the word cavalry. So, uh, yeah. Anyway, this stint would last a little longer. The 8th was sent out to Tennessee, where they were involved mostly with guard and garrison duties and some skirmishes with guerrillas west of Nashville. And somewhere along the line, Alfred got his pay docked for, quote, plundering the citizens of Nashville. End quote. Make of that what you will. I'm assuming he was stealing shit that absolutely did not belong to him. And it most certainly would not be the last time. Wasn't long after that when Alfred was once again medically discharged thanks to his epilepsy. Uh, this was in April of 1864, 10 months after his enlistment. By the way, just a history nerd tangent real quick. The Battle of Nashville wouldn't take place for like another nine months. I thought initially maybe that's where the plundering came into play, but no. Not exactly sure of the situation here. Uh, maybe some of you Civil War buffs can email me and let me know what action, if any, Packer may have been involved with in the area at that time. As it is, I'm not sure whether Alfred ever saw combat. And even if he didn't, that doesn't take anything away from his service. I'm just genuinely curious. We know that by the time of Packer's discharge, he was suffering from seizures at least every couple of days, sometimes having two or three within a 48-hour period. And that is according to a doctor's note. By this point, the war was almost over, and Alfred, not bothering to enlist a third time, simply drifted west, taking odd jobs as he went. Everything from a harness maker to a laborer. And according to him, he even spent time as a hunter and wilderness guide. Although I do find that a little hard to believe for reasons that will become apparent soon enough. Alfred eventually found himself in the gold diggings of Colorado, where he would have the misfortune of losing the top portions of both his pinky and index fingers in a mining accident. He also took up work as a jack whacker. Old Packer the Whacker. Now, I found this especially interesting as I had no idea you could actually earn a living being a jack whacker. Boy, oh boy, if I had a dollar for every time I've whacked my jack. Well, let's just say, talk about striking it rich. A real stroke of good luck, if you know what I mean. And it really says a lot about Packer's skill level. You know, being able to whack a jack while missing parts of two fingers. Although I have been told it does make it more natural that way. Uh, no. Uh, actually, a jack whacker was sort of like a mule skinner. It was teamster work. Alfred was basically driving pack mules, carrying supplies, lumber, food, all that good stuff, back and forth from various mining camps, all the while while still suffering from chronic seizures. Packer would eventually continue his trek westward, and by the year 1871 could be found working in the Bingham Canyon copper mines, not far from Salt Lake City, Utah, a vocation that caused Alfred to quote-unquote get leaded, a miner's term for contracting lead poisoning. A very real danger, then and now especially in developing countries where laborers get it probably the same way that Alfred did. Horrible working conditions that cause them to inhale dust that contains lead. Severe cases can lead to death, and symptoms include super fun stuff like joint muscle and abdominal pain, headaches, difficulty concentrating, mood disorders, even seizures. Kind of wonder if Alfred's epilepsy was kicked into overdrive during this time. And this would not be his only case of lead poisoning. Not long after this bout, Alfred took up work in Sandy, Utah, just south of Salt Lake, where he got leaded yet again, this time ingesting castor oil as treatment per a doctor's order. Now, I've never tried castor oil, but I've heard a lot about it from older family members who were forced to take it when they were growing up. And they were forced to take it to cure pretty much everything. Feeling sick to your stomach? Here's a spoonful of castor oil. Constipated? Castor oil. Headache? Castor oil. Don't feel like going to school? Oh yeah, you taking that castor oil. 
From what I've gathered, it pretty much causes you to shit your insides out, along with all the impurities that are causing whatever ails you. I've even heard that it's been used to induce labor, so you know it's some strong stuff. Not sure it actually really helps with anything, though, and I'm pretty positive it does nothing for lead poisoning or epilepsy, for that matter. A quick search on Google reveals that a common modern-day treatment for lead poisoning is a method known as chelation therapy. You're injected with a certain cocktail of drugs that bind the metals to your blood, and then you just sort of piss them out. Obviously, this wasn't an option back in the 1870s, so castor oil it was. And who knows, maybe it did help as Alfred was back on his feet and feeling spry by the fall of 1873, right around the time that he met up with a failed prospector turned freight hauler, Bob McGrew. And here's where things get interesting. Now, Bob and some other old boys were planning on headed east to pan for gold in Colorado, Breckenridge, Colorado, or thereabouts. And long story short, Alfred sort of conned his way in with them. He told the group that he knew the area they were going to and that he had previously lived and worked in Colorado, which was true. However, when he added that he could serve as a guide and help them reach their destination in just 20 short days, he was either lying through his teeth or at very least vastly overestimating his own abilities. Truth was, Alfred Packer couldn't guide himself out of a damn paper sack, much less a vast wilderness. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Packer was broke as a joke at this point, and he needed some money. I'm not above lying to get a job my own self. So, okay, fine. And who knows, maybe he did really believe he could guide them into the gold diggings. I mean, he had made the trip himself, at least in the opposite direction, so who knows. Either way, he convinced this Bob McGrew to provide him his $50 grub steak, and away they went. It would be 21 men total who'd leave Utah bound for Colorado. None of them, it seems, very experienced in the arts of wilderness survival. And in all fairness, someone like Packer, who knew the lay of the land, could prove to be invaluable. At least that was the hope. A couple of things I found interesting, though. First off, it does appear that McGrew was initially impressed by Alfred. He would state that Packer looked to be in great physical shape, that he was smart, and even a quote-unquote fine talker. He also let it slide that Packer enjoyed arguing religion with the Mormons. Now, I'm not sure if these were like intellectual, good faith type theological debates or if they were more akin to just internet trolling type arguments. And I say that because other than Bob McGrew, literally nobody else was impressed by Alfred Packer. Matter of fact, the other men of the expedition could not stand the man. And I mean, not at all. The other thing worth noting is that Alfred was rumored to have circulated a little bit of counterfeit money there in the Salt Lake City region. He also, by his own admission, spent three months in jail after being caught in a whorehouse. And I can't blame him on that one. I think we all know how freaky them Mormon women can be, right? All you little Salt Lake soakers out there. Think I don't know? You little Mormon marinators, you? Seriously, uh, although Alfred does at this point strike me as being a little shady, well, with the constant moving around, the lying about being a guide, some possible jail time, there's nothing too damning here, right? None of what I just mentioned would have really caused the men to dislike him that much. No, it seems it was a combination of all of the above and a whole bunch of other stuff. First and foremost, it quickly became apparent that he weren't no god. You know, nowadays, if you were to travel from Salt Lake City, Utah to Breckenridge, Colorado, you're looking at about seven and a half hour drive. Head south through Provo, hit I-70 and take that due west all the way to Colorado and your final destination. No fuss, no muss. Maybe stop and grab some lunch along the way at a tiny diner where the waitresses call you honey and they chain smoke Marlboro Reds and probably sound like Selma and Patty from The Simpsons. 
Things would have been much different for Alfred Packer and the gang back in 1873, however. They set out on the 1st of November after stocking up on supplies and they headed southeast on the old Spanish Trail till they crossed the Colorado River, possibly near present-day Moab, Utah. This is where things sort of petered out. Seeing as how it was already late in the year, the road, if you want to call it that, was already buried under the snow. As such, it became abundantly clear that their intrepid guide, Alfred Packer, had no fucking clue where to go. And just in case you're not all that great with geography, the men were now approaching the Rocky Mountains, the San Juan Range in particular, a very rugged area and not something you'd want to try as a tenderfoot, unless you had a scout, that is, a real scout. And even then, there are cases of experienced hands getting lost in such areas. John C. Fremont, the famous explorer, for example, had a very disastrous expedition not far from the area where Packer and the boys were headed. He was being guided by old Bill Williams, a very capable mountain man, and still 10 of their party perished. This rugged terrain in the dead of winter does not discriminate. One false step, one mistake, and you're a dead man. Experience be damned. Just to get an idea of how rough going it was, remember how I said it was supposed to be a 20-day journey? Well, two months later, the would-be miners were still trying to make it. And by this point, they were completely fed up with Alfred Packer. And it wasn't just because he sucked at a guide, nor was it due to his condition and his constant seizures, although that certainly didn't help matters. No, it seemed that Alfred Packer was just sort of a creepy guy and not much of a team player. The expedition started rationing their food rather quickly, you know, once it became apparent that the trip would take longer than planned. This, however, did not stop Alfred from eating his fill. And he wasn't even being sneaky about it, just blatantly eating more than his fair share. He was also a little too nosy for his own good, constantly asking the men how much money they had on them and gossiping about said money to the other party members. He complained a lot and about everything and was just basically unwilling to pull his own weight. A quote-unquote whining fraud is how one of the men of the expedition would later remember Packer. And then there's the fact that his voice had this annoying high pitch to it. So yeah, not only did Alfred prove to be useless, but he was also grating on the nerves. Not a winning combination. Trust me, I should know. And nobody ever makes mention of it, but I get the feeling that Alfred was the type of guy that stands uncomfortably close when he talks to you. And for sure, if he was around nowadays, he'd talk really loud over speakerphone out in public. And just to give you an idea of how little he was respected, at one point he had a seizure and fell into the fire, and nobody even made a move to help him. They told Bob McGrew, who eventually got up and pulled him out of the fire, that Alfred was now his responsibility. All right, so obviously the men soon ran out of food. Remember, they only packed for 20 days, and they might just have been doomed had it not been for some various friendly Native Americans that they ran into along the way. These indigenous saviors would guide the prospectors for a day or two and then head home. Then the Myers run into another good Samaritan who would do the same. Still, though, it wasn't that long before they were completely out of food. At one point, they even had to live off a of horse feed, chopped barley, I believe it was, for five whole days. Finally, on January 25th, 1874, nearly 90 days after departing Salt Lake City, the men had the good fortune to run to a band of Ute under the leadership of Chief Ure, near present-day Montrose, Colorado. Now, this was Ute land that they were on, legally. And once Ure determined that the men weren't a threat, he did invite them to winter just a couple of miles away from his village, which they gladly did setting up camp in various shelters, everything from tents to dugouts to crude shrub and brush-type dwellings that Packer himself took refuge in. The men were also able to trade a bit with the Ute, 
securing a couple of goats for food as well as some clothing, stuff like that. And believe it or not, some of the men still wanted to push on. Even asked Ure if he'd lend some scouts to get them where they needed to go. A request that the chief wisely refused. Said that the conditions were so rough, not even a ute would attempt to make such a journey, and he urged the men just to chill where they were for the winter. Ah, but they wouldn't listen. And by February, six of the men were ready to travel. Seeing that these hard-headed fools were determined and knowing that they wouldn't listen to reason, Ure was gracious enough to load them up with some food and even give them directions, a much safer route that would take them along the Gunnison River. And thus provisioned, they set out with Alfred Packer attempting to follow. But they would not have him. One of the guys, a former officer of the law, actually pulled a pistol on Alfred and told him to get his ass back to camp. Not the most popular guy on the expedition, Alfred Packer. Still, though, he was undeterred. And for whatever reason, he was not content to stay put near the Ute camp either. Claiming once again to be some sort of a guide, he proposed a direct route that would take them in over the mountains in the effing winter, and somehow he convinced five others to accompany him. I guess the idea was to head straight for the Los Pinos Indian Agency, which I believe was the closest point of civilization. But come on, man, what is the rush? All they had to do was just sit around a campfire for the next couple of months, flirt with beautiful Ute women, and eat barbecued goat. But no, they had to go out there and follow a damn lunatic on a 75-mile-long journey into the freezing damn wilderness. And this group of geniuses consisted of Alfred Packer, of course, a guy named Frank the Butcher Miller, George California Noon, Israel Swan, Shannon Wilson Bell, and James Humphrey. They had two rifles, one pistol, a hatchet, couple of knives and a handful of matches. No flint or any other way to start a fire, very little ammunition, no heavy coats, no snowshoes. They barely had any food. They were in no way, shape, or form in any sort of condition to attempt to cross over the rocky damn mountains in the middle of winter, or even the summer, for that matter. With that in mind, I think it should come as no surprise that once spring had sprung, they were all dead. All of them, except for Alfred Packer, that is. He finally arrived at their intended destination, the Los Pinos Indian Agency, alone and half froze in mid-April of 1874, over two months after he and the mother five set out from the Ute village. Now, there's various versions of what exactly happened when Packer showed up. Some claim that he was ravished and ate almost immediately. Others say that he only wanted whiskey. Another version, which seems to have the ring of truth, is that he took the whiskey to calm his nerves, to get his appetite up, and then he ate. Likely he needed the whiskey to steal himself before telling his tale. After all, I think we'd all need a few shots of whiskey after doing what Alfred did. He initially claimed that he got afflicted with snow blindness, at which time the rest of the men abandoned him, leaving him with just a Winchester rifle. As such, he had to make it out of the wilderness alone, living mostly on rosebuds he found along the way. The men of the agency found the rosebuds claim especially strange, seeing as how Alfred did not appear all that starved. He looked like a wild man who had just emerged from the mountains, sure, but he wasn't skin and bones. He clearly had more to eat than damn rosebuds. Uh, by the way, if you're like me, you're probably thinking, why didn't they eat the damn horses? Well, the horses they still had were back at the Ute camp. When Alfred and those five guys set out, they did so on foot. The snow would have been far too deep for the horses to cross through anyway. All right, so Alfred, after making his tell, also claimed to be broke and sold his rifle to the agency's justice, a guy named Major James Downer, and soon set off for the nearby town of Sawatch to buy supplies. Said he was going to go back home to Pennsylvania. Another strange claim, considering that he hadn't lived in Pennsylvania since he was a baby. 
Either way, Alfred would not leave town immediately. Matter of fact, he went on a little bit of a spree, spending a whopping $100 in Dolan's saloon. Ten times the amount of money he got for uh, selling that Winchester, by the way. So he clearly wasn't as broke as he claimed. $100 in 1874, just in case you're curious, is like $2,500 in today's money. And that's a lot of whiskey. Packer then went to the general store and spent a reported $78, $1,900 in today's money, on some fresh duds and supplies. And then, of course, he headed back to Dolan's Saloon. Liked it so much there that he actually took up residence in it, living off of canned oysters, peaches, and, of course, whiskey. Now, I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but strong liquor tends to loosen one's lips just a bit. And Alfred was no different. He began drunkenly sharing his harrowing tale to all who would listen, and, of course, each telling differed from the other, one story often contradicting the previous. There's also the suspicious amount of wallets or billfolds that he had on his person. And then something else happened that didn't help his cause none. Remember all them guys that stayed back with the ute, opting to look after the wagons and horses till springtime? Well, these old boys began trickling in, astonished to find Packer drinking it up there in the saloon. Of course, they were curious, you know, what happened to the other men that Alfred departed with? Where were they? What became of them? Alfred stuck with his original story. Kind of. Uh, saying that the men left him to fend for himself after he stepped in some water and froze his foot. Remember, uh, originally he said that he was uh, temporarily blinded. Nonetheless, it was curious to these men that Packer had been left with a rifle. It was also curious that he had other possessions on him that once belonged to his former uh, companions. Like, oh, I don't know, their wallets, or Mr. Miller's much-beloved butcher knife, or a tobacco pipe that belonged to party member Shannon Bell. As for the knife, Packer claimed that Miller stuck it into a tree and went off and left it. Finders keepers, losers weepers, I guess. These men of the expedition weren't buying it, though, especially a guy by the name of Preston Nutter. He knew something bad had happened and claimed that Packer was a quote-unquote quarrelsome liar, and before too long, accusations began to fly. Things got so heated that Preston wanted to string Alfred up right there on the streets of Sawatch. Cooler heads prevailed, though, and the two men were separated and Packer quickly and wisely began making plans to get the hell out of town. Unfortunately for him, he took his leaving a bit slow. Other members of the expedition started showing up, you know, them guys that follow Chief Ure's safer route along the river, you know, the ones that uh, wouldn't let Alfred join them. And when they heard Packer's story, they cried bullshit as well, saying that those men with Alfred weren't the type just to abandon a man like that. They were so damn adamant that not only was Alfred not to be trusted, but that something horrible must have happened up there in the mountains that they finally convinced the head of the agency, Charles Adams, to send some men to Sawatch to bring Packer in for questioning. They didn't simply just arrest the man, though. They caught up with Alfred and explained that they were going to send a search party to look for his companions and that they needed him to guide them there. Of course, he didn't want to do this, but old Mr. Nutter and his buddies were still on his ass and... He had the very real fear at this point of being lynched. So he rode on back to Los Pinos with this escort. Once there, he had a sit down with Adams, who by this time had quite a few questions for Alfred Packer. Matter of fact, he even convened a council of minors. Essentially, this was like a come to Jesus moment. Tell me what really happened, Alfred. I understand. If it's what I think, well, you did what any man would have done to survive. It's okay. Just tell me. And then it didn't help matters much when a couple of Utes showed up with what they called white man's meat, dried strips of human flesh that they found on a nearby hill. Oh boy, it was all too much for Alfred. He got so overwhelmed that he fainted. 
Once revived and back on his feet, I guess Packer felt like it was time to come clean. Started begging for mercy and began his confession ominously, saying, quote, it would not be the first time that people had been obliged to eat each other when they were hungry. Packer claimed, as I've already mentioned, that they ran out of food after a few days and they were living off whatever they could find. Roots, rosebuds, and occasional rabbit. These dudes even ate their own boots, okay? Then one day, with all of them on the verge of starvation, Packer left camp to gather firewood. Upon his return, he found Israel's swan dead on the ground, his head caved in with a hatchet, and the other four men just standing around him. They then butchered Swan's body, divvy up the money he had on him, and they dined on his flesh. The body of one person won't last long when picked up by five hungry men, though. Then a few days, Israel was all add up, and once again, hunger began gnawing at the men's bellies. According to Alfred, this is when they began conspiring to eat the butcher Miller next, which they did, likewise dispatching him with a blow to the head by that hatchet as he bent over to pick up some fuel for the fire. Evidently, there was a method to their madness, as Miller was said to be stocky, so I guess they were hungry for a little bit of fat. And so it went. Humphrey was next, followed by George Noon, leaving just Packer and Bell, who made a pact not to eat each other. Said they'd never speak of what truly happened, and if they made it out alive, they would just claim that the other men died of starvation or the weather, and that they all had proper burials. But of course, why stop now? I mean, eating human flesh is kind of like a can of Pringles, right? You just can't stop Soon enough, both men were out of food and hungry, again. Alfred claimed that this is when Bell snapped and ran at him, swinging his rifle like a club. Packer deflected the blow and counterattacked, striking the bigger man with a fatal blow to the head with a hatchet and shot him. And once again, Alfred Packer had a full belly. And you know the rest. He was soon emerged from the wilderness there at Los Pinos. Upon hearing this so-called confession, the men of the expedition once again called bullshit, especially when it came to Bell saying that he was the type to lay down his life for others as opposed to being the crazed killer that Packer claimed. Either way, a search party was organized. They were to head to the area where Packer claimed he and Bell camped out for a few days, a big lake some 50 or so miles from Los Pinos, and Alfred would be forced to guide them there. Things didn't go so smoothly, though. You had a few members of the original expedition, including Nutter, who hated Packer, Yet a few Ute scouts and the agency constable, a guy named Louder. A few days into the journey, Louder noticed that Alfred had that old skinning knife that he took from Miller concealed on his person. Louder demanded that he hand it over, and Packer sort of snapped and came rushing at the constable, blade in hand. This attack was easily thwarted, and Packer was both disarmed and subdued. Nutter ripped into him again, saying that he deserved to be hanged, and at this point, Packer began claiming that he was lost and he refused to go any further. He and the constable soon returned to the agency where Packer was placed into the custody of the Sawak sheriff. As for the other men of the search party, they continued, and they did find Packer's old camp, but despite searching for a couple of weeks, they were not able to locate any bodies. Meanwhile, back at the agency and in custody, Packer withdrew his original confession. This time he claimed that the men made a pact that if someone died, it'd be okay if the others ate him. Swan was the first to go, dying of exposure. Humphrey suffered the same fate. Then when Pack was out gathering wood, Butcher Miller was killed by accident, or at least that's what Alfred claims he was told. At some point thereafter, Bell shot and killed California Noon, and then Alfred killed Bell when he came at it. As far as the money goes, Packer admitted that he took it because it weren't no use to the dead men any longer. Now, this part here, I agree with him on. You know, what earthly good would it do to leave all that money there? 
course, the proper thing to do would have been to make sure the money gets to the next akin rather than, you know, a several day whiskey and oyster binge. Maybe help yourself to just one day of oysters and whiskey, and then you send the rest of the money to the family members. I think that's what I do. Now, from what I can tell, Alfred Packer was stuck there in that makeshift jail at the Los Pinos agency for the next few months, at least until August. Not sure what they were planning on doing with the man, but they weren't going to just let him go. You know, maybe they were hoping to establish proof that he had indeed murdered his companions, as suspected. Like I said, Nutter and the others on that search party, they spent weeks looking for the bodies of the missing and presumed dead men. They even dammed up a little portion of a river thinking that Packer had dumped the bodies. Now, what happened next is a little confusing as two things happened very quickly. One, the bodies were discovered that August. There's some disagreement as to who made the gruesome discovery, but it was likely an artist named John Randolph. And the location is now known as Dead Man's Gulch, near the Lake Fork of the Gunnison River. And two, Alfred Packer escaped from jail and disappeared. Now, which order these things happened in, I was not able to determine. I think Packer escaped shortly before the bodies were discovered, but I could be wrong. We also don't know for sure how he escaped. Some say that he bribed the guards or even the sheriff, while others think he was slipped a penknife that he used to kind of slip out of his shackles. Still, others claim that it was the town of Sawatch's founders who helped him escape, mostly due to them not appreciating having to foot the bill for this prisoner for months on end. One thing's for sure, though. Alfred wasn't about to sit around and wait patiently for a hangman's noose. As soon as he had his opportunity, he took it and got the hell out of town. And you got to give credit where credit is due. You know, the guy didn't linger. He didn't just go to the next town and get drunk. No, he flat out disappeared. So much so that many speculated that he was dead. As word of his grisly deeds spread, so did the rumors, with many thinking that he never even made it out of Colorado, that he was killed by Native Americans shortly after escaping. And of course, nothing of the sort was true. Packer wasn't dead, he was just simply in Arkansas, which, to be fair, is about as close to dead as you can get on this side of the grave. After laying low in Arkansas, Packer continued to wander, never staying too long in one place. First Nevada, then Arizona, up Montana way, and eventually Wyoming. Somewhere along the line, he took to using the alias John Schwartz. Now, remember, Packer was a miner by profession, and he soon found himself back in that line of work. Matter of fact, it's what he was doing there in Wyoming when he finally got caught nearly a decade after his escape. An original member of the expedition, a guy by the name of John Frenchy Cabazon, he was one of the guys who stayed put there in the Ute camp. Well, he happened to be on his way to Fort Fetterman when he stopped at a roadside inn. As he was attempted to catch a little shut-eye, he couldn't help but to notice a familiar high-pitched, annoying voice speaking loudly in the next room. Upon further investigation, he found out that the voice did indeed belong to none other than Alfred Packer. From what I can tell, however, it appears both men sort of pretended that they didn't know each other. Alfred obviously was trying to pass as this John Schwartz guy, and even went so far as to ask Cabazon to bring him some baking soda next time he passed through the area claimed to have been prospecting in nearby Spring Canyon. But as far as Frenchie was concerned, it was Packer without a doubt, right? That voice and those missing fingers, even crude false teeth in the place of his missing ones. I think I actually forgot to mention that earlier. Uh, Packer was missing his front two upper teeth and had been ever since the expedition. But I guess by this point in time, he had obtained some false teeth somewhere. The next day, Cabazon wasted no time in alerting authorities, and the Laramie County Sheriff paid Alfred a visit, arresting him without incident and placing his ass in the jail there in Cheyenne. 
Evidently, this wasn't Packer's first run-in with the law in Wyoming. He had previously been locked up for threatening a waiter uh, with a damn revolver just because the man was a tad bit on the slow side in bringing Alfred his water. And that little tidbit of information is where I lose what little sympathy I have for Alfred Packer. And I did, believe it or not, have a little bit of sympathy. You know, nobody ever really cared about Alfred. And I do think a lot of it had to do with his epilepsy. It would have made him a bit of a social pariah wherever he went, especially in those days. He likely felt ostracized and getting kicked out of the army twice, even though it was for medical reasons, probably didn't help either. Dude was missing two fingers and two teeth, so you know he wasn't winning no beauty contests. And he just had a way about him that rubbed others the wrong way. I got the same failing myself. There's times when I think people, despite my intentions, take what I say or do the wrong way, and I get it. I've also kind of always had a soft spot for rejects, mostly because I've been a bit of a reject my entire life as well. And I couldn't help but to think that maybe Alfred kind of felt the same way. And then I hear about little incidents like this with the waiter, and that's one of my biggest pet peeves. And it's something I think is very telling about somebody's character. You know, how they treat their waitstaff or anyone that they consider to be below them on the social ladder. Whether it's an employee at a restaurant, you know, some kid working McDonald's or just whoever's bagging their groceries. I found that people who act like this generally feel powerless in their day-to-day lives. You know, their boss treats them like shit and they just take it because they have no spine. Their wife and kids ignore them. They've got no say at home. So the one time they actually feel like they have some power is when they have another human being taking food orders for them or something. And for the record, I've never even worked as a waiter. I just hate that type of mentality. Oh, this person's job is to serve me as if I'm some sort of king, so let me try to make them feel as shitty as I do. As if someone who has that type of job is somehow below you. you. Go fuck yourself if that's how you think. I don't care if someone's working at Taco Bell or not. They're working. They're being productive. You aren't somehow above them just because you feel inadequate in your day-to-day life. The chaps my hide. All right, enough of my ranting. Also, Packer did brag a bit when he got arrested. He told the sheriff, quote, that's the first time in 20 years I didn't have my gun on me. If I had, you could have never taken me. Like he's John Wayne or something. To loosely paraphrase Charles Bronson in the excellent movie, Mr. Majestic, Alfred Packer was making sounds like he was a mean little ass kicker. Only I ain't convinced. For what it's worth, once apprehended, Packer calmed down and readily confessed to his true identity. He was eventually taken to Denver by train and reunited with Charles Adams from the Los Pinos Agency. And his mean little ass kicking facade began cracking as well. Seems that Alfred got mighty nervous at the throng of people who came to see the infamous Colorado cannibal. And as such, he began to once again fear a lynching. Promised Adams that he'd give another confession, a true and full confession, if only he was placed in jail and protected from the murderous mob. By the way, I'm not sure of the exact location of Packer's arrest. Uh, One source claimed a cabin on Hound Creek west of Laramie. Just thought I'd toss that in there. Packer was true to his word, and he did give another confession, this one differing from the previous two. Once again, he explained how bad off he and the men were, you know, snowed in and living off of rosebuds, how they had to eat their boots, told how some of the men were so hungry they were crying out in pain. Finally, Packer took the rifle and he went to go look for help. When he returned to camp later that day, unsuccessful, he found that everybody was dead except for Bell, who was cooking a piece of meat that he had cut off of uh, Butcher Miller. Bell, seemingly gone mad by this point, ran at Packer and Alfred shot him. As he fell, Packer then gave him a coup de gras over the top of the head with that hatchet, and that was that. 
Alfred claimed to have left the next morning, but was driven back to camp due to the deep snow, and it's then that he finally gave in to his hunger. Each day that followed, Packer said that he tried to get away, to leave camp, but each day he would end up returning and dying on human flesh yet again. There was $70 he collected among the dead men, which he pocketed with his own 20. Eventually, the weather broke, and he was able to leave carrying some of the meat with him and eating as he traveled and finally discarding what was left as soon as he got to the agency. When he was asked why this confession was so different than the earlier two, he claimed that he wasn't himself at the time, that he couldn't be held responsible for anything that he might have said. Remember, at the very beginning, Packer claimed that his companions abandoned him. Then when he was finally caught on his bullshit, he gave the elaborate tale of them killing each other one by one. Now, with this confession, he claimed that it was Bell that killed everybody, and he only killed Bell out of self-defense. I'll give him a little bit of leniency as far as, you know, being out of his mind at the time. It certainly would have been a traumatic experience, and I can see not exactly being in the right frame of mind after finally making it back to civilization. Nevertheless, Packer would be tried for murder, a trial that would take place in the new mining town of Lake City, Colorado, not all that far from the so-called Dead Man's Gulch where Packer claimed that Bell killed the other men. I was actually familiar with Lake City before ever researching Alfred Packer, and I was surprised that there was a connection. But I've always been kind of fascinated with the place even though I've never been there. Located in a valley in the San Juan Mountains, Lake City only boasts a population of around 400. It's fairly secluded, beautiful, and unfortunately, it's colder than a witch's tit. I've always thought it would be a cool place to escape to, you know, provided I could one day afford such an escape. However, the older I get, the more I realize that maybe I've spent too much of my life in Texas and I might not enjoy spending months at a time freezing my ass off, beautiful or not. I don't know what it is about getting older and not being able to take the cold anymore. Anyway, back to the story. Packer's trial began on April 6, 1883, not even a month after his arrest. And it was during this trial that the prosecution put forth the theory that Alfred deliberately lied about his abilities as a scout to lure these men who he knew had money out into the wilderness with the express purpose of murdering them and taking their money. And this is a good spot to point out that Alfred was never put on trial for cannibalism. Only murder. Just wanted to clear that up. And get this, it's not even against the law here in the United States to consume human flesh. At least not in 49 of our 50 states. Not technically. Idaho does have a specific law barring cannibalism, but even they make an exception for life-threatening conditions where eating human flesh is the only means of survival. It's crazy, though. You know, it's not illegal to be a cannibal anywhere else in the U.S. Here's the catch, though. You can't murder somebody to eat them, even if they agree to it. That's still murder. And you're not allowed to desecrate a corpse, so you can't just dig up like a freshly buried body or something. However, you could theoretically buy a body part, which is way easier than I thought. In a 2017 article published by Reuters titled The Body Trade, cashing in on the donated dead, they shed light on abuses that occur when cadavers are sold to a mostly unregulated market. I guess the idea is that some poor families turn to certain organizations who offer free cremation services in exchange for donating their loved ones' bodies to, quote, advance medical studies. And in a lot of legitimate circles, this is absolutely necessary. Medical students, doctors, some nurses, even some dentists have uses for cadavers for training purposes. The article goes on to say that from 2011 to 2015, private brokers received at least 50,000 bodies and distributed more than 182,000 body parts, 
And since it's an unregulated market, we don't really know what's happening to many of these parts. That said, you probably could purchase a body part legally. You didn't have to kill nobody for it, and it doesn't fall under the desecrating a corpse thing, I think. You know, is it then legal to buy and eat a body part? I don't fucking know. It sounds fishy to me. I know that according to a 2018 Vice article, a man who wanted to remain anonymous had his foot amputated after a motorcycle accident. He asked to keep said foot, and the doctors agreed. He then invited several of his friends over to his home, where they all dined on tacos made from his foot. Woo! And of course, there are those absolute psychos who keep and eat their placentas after giving birth. I shit you not. If you're looking for a step-by-step -step guide on how to obtain human flesh with the express purpose of eating it, you're on your own. I, I can't help you there. Uh, this is where I'm guessing the dark web would come into play. Also, all this talk of cannibalism is getting me to thinking about what it might taste like. And the answer is probably pork. At least that's according to an article I found on The Guardian from 2010 aptly titled, What Does Human Flesh Taste Like? They quoted one verified real-life cannibal as saying that it tastes like pork, only a little bitter, while another said that it tastes like good, fully developed veal. So there you go. You got one for pork, the other for veal. Now we need a tiebreaker. Well, German serial killer Fritz Harman, who killed 24 male prostitutes in the early 1900s, actually disposed of the remains by selling them as pork. And as far as I know, none of his customers complained that their pork tasted funny, so I think it's safe to say that us people taste a little bit like swine. One last thing, then we'll get back to Alfred Packer. I've seen the book of Eli like a hundred times, and I had to know, does eating human flesh make your hands shake? Well, from what I can tell, it depends on whether or not you eat the brains. Uh, I guess there are prions in the human brain that when eaten can cause a disease called Kuru, K-U-R-U. Kind of like mad cow disease for humans. The four or 4A people of Papua New Guinea have been observed with this after eating their uh, victims. It can be fatal, and since it's a disease of the nervous system, the symptoms do include a lack of control over your body movements, loss of coordination, and yes, the shakes. But in the case of Alfred Packer, I guess as long as he didn't eat their brains, then I think he was safe. Anyway, who cares, right? We are disgusting and we eat disgusting shit all the time. If you think you've never had human flesh and you've eaten canned ravioli or hot dogs or McDonald's, you're kidding yourself. You're out of your damn mind. You know a finger got lost in there at some point. All right, back to the trial of Alfred Packer. It would last all of a week and he would be found guilty as hell of premeditated murder, despite his pleading the opposite and he would be sentenced to death by hanging with an execution date of May 19th, 1883. It was reported, and it still to this day is often repeated, that the presiding judge, M.B. Gary, said the following as he handed down the sentence. Quote, Stand up, you voracious man-eating son of a bitch, and receive your sentence. When you came to Hinsdale County, there were seven Democrats, but you ate five of them, goddamn you. I sentence you to be hanged by the neck till you're dead, dead, dead as a warning again reduces the Democratic population of this county. Packer, you Republican cannibal. I will sentence you to hell, but the statutes forbid it. End quote. And as entertaining as that was, it's not true. Not even a little bit. Uh, the judge was actually much more level-headed when laying down the sentence, if not long-winded. I've actually read the entire speech the judge gave, and I'm not going to recite it here because it would take fucking forever. The dude loved the sound of his own voice. Probably should have started his own podcast. And there was no condemnation or anything like that. No mention of Republicans or Democrats. And he didn't sound like Yosemite Sam. 
But he did, in the end, sentence Alfred to hang by the neck until he was dead, dead, dead. By the way, why do they say dead three times like that? I know why they say until dead, of course. You know, hangings aren't always pretty, and they don't always ensure a quick death, so you want to hang them until they're dead. But three times? I don't know. If you happen to know why the word is repeated three times, please email me and let me know. Josh at wildwestextra.com. The sentence notwithstanding, Packer had himself some decent lawyers, and believe it or not, they were able to get his rendezvous with the noose overturned. I'm not too good on the whole legalese of the matter, but it was something due to the effect of uh, when the crime was committed, Colorado wasn't yet a state. Ex post facto law, I think is what it's called. There were other issues with Packer's trial as well, like the fact that he damn sure didn't have an impartial jury there in Lake City. Now, this doesn't mean that Packer just got off scot-free, though. His death sentence was overturned, but he was still culpable for the deaths of those men. He had another trial after a change of venue and once again pled not guilty. And he was once again found guilty. This time, instead of being sentenced to death, he was only sentenced to 40 years in prison. And I use the word only semi-sarcastically. This was, at the time, in June of 1886, the longest mandatory sentence ever handed down in the United States. By the way, one thing I found that was interesting was that hunters came forward during this time, claiming that while the winter of 1874, when the deaths occurred, was a very harsh winter, there was still abundant game, big and large. Enough that, as far as they were concerned, there was no need to resort to cannibalism. To which I say, maybe. What may seem easy to an experienced Colorado hunter may not be so easy for others. I've personally gone hunting on many, many occasions when weather was optimal and not seen a damn thing. But then again, I wasn't starving to death either. Packer's credit, he did testify on his own behalf, and his version of events remained very similar to that third full confession that he gave on the trip back to Colorado. He steadfastly maintained that the only man he killed was Bell, and even during the sentencing asked that if they were determined to send him away for 40 years, to do so for the killing of just that one man. By the way, Alfred always maintained this story. He never did admit to killing the others. You would think that, you know, as many do when their backs are against the wall, that, that he would have admitted to anything to get out of such a long stretch. But he did not. Which leads to the big question. Was he telling the truth? If things happened, as Packer claimed, you know, if he returned back to camp to find that Shannon Bell killed everyone and then Bell attacked him, then what Packer did was in self-defense. And remember, he wasn't on trial for eating human flesh. Everybody knew he was a cannibal. He admitted to it. And it wasn't against the law. You know, nobody really held that against him anyway. It was not unheard of. It was taboo, but it was not illegal. We'll get more into whether or not you think Alfred was guilty later. Uh, at the time, though, as far as he was concerned, all that mattered was what the judge said, and the judge sent his ass to jail for what would have probably been the rest of his natural life had the tide not begun to change, and had he not gotten some help from a lady by the name of Polly Pry. Polly was a journalist for the Denver Post who took great interest in Packer and his situation after meeting him in 1901. And it was her actions, along with the backing of the paper, that secured Alfred Packer an early release. Also, as I alluded to, public opinion was changing. Alfred was sentenced back in 1886. By the turn of the century, however, a somewhat more liberal mindset had taken hold of the populace. People started feeling sorry for him. You know, they started noticing how his health was quickly deteriorating due to the imprisonment and his ever-present seizures. And they also kind of viewed him with a bit of nostalgia. He was a remnant of the Old West days, you know, a kind of a leftover artifact from the days of wild Indians. By the way, a primary source I used to research Alfred Packer was the excellent book Maneater 
by Harold Schechter. I definitely recommend it if you're interested in the subject. Very well researched. It goes into great detail about the various trials, Packer's time spent incarcerated, and his relationship with Miss Polly Pry. There's a lot I'm leaving out, okay? The damn audio version of the book is over nine hours long. Obviously, I'm not going to make a podcast episode that long. This is already too long. So yeah, there's a lot more involved with the story. All kinds of crazy stuff. Packer was given a job making bridles out of horsehair. He also worked in the prison gardens, and he himself made extra money by building and selling these elaborate Victorian-style dollhouses. How creepy would that be, having a dollhouse made by a damn homicidal cannibal? And he got scammed while in prison at least like three times. He was getting a military pension, 25 bucks a month. And what little bit he was able to save away, he was constantly getting scammed out of by others who were claiming to be trying to get him released from prison. One of these even convinced Packer to sign him over as a power of attorney. This crazy dude by the name of Plug Hat Anderson. And this Plug Hat guy, he eventually snapped and shot two of the reporters from the Denver Post while Polly Pry was present. Uh, there's a story about her dress catching one of the bullets or something. The whole damn story is insane. Buy the book. Trust me, you'll love it. All right, let's keep going and try to wrap this up. After many, many appeals and with the help of Polly Pry, a sympathetic public, and the Denver Post, Alfred Packer was finally paroled from prison on February 8th, 1901, at 59 years of age. The governor of Colorado actually signed the parole, not the pardon, parole, on his last day in office as his last official act as governor. The original crime had been committed nearly three decades prior. After nine years on the lam and two trials, Packer had spent 18 years total behind bars. And he was amazed at how much it changed over the years. He initially took a job there at the Denver Post as sort of a security guard, but eventually moved on to nearby Jefferson County where he led a quiet life, prospected a bit, and then moved again to Sheridan, Colorado, not Wyoming. And there he continued this quiet life, raising chickens, tending to his garden. He became known as a kindly old man who'd hand out candy to children, regaling them with tales likely made up from the old days, tales and encounters with grizzly bears and heroin battles with Native Americans. In 1905, Packer moved back to Jefferson County near Deer Creek Canyon, where he worked part-time for an old friend named Ed Connolly. In July of the following year, 1906, the Connollys left Packer on the ranch alone as they went on a trip. One morning, a passerby happened to notice that Packer was collapsed on the ground, unconscious. Rushing him to obtain medical help, Packer would uh, slightly improve, but he would be constantly racked by seizures for months. And these were very, very violent seizures. He was basically bedridden. In the fall of 1906, in one 24-hour period, he had 15 seizures. Still, though, he lingered. However, by early April, knowing that the end was probably near, Alfred asked for pen and paper. He wrote to the then governor that he was dying and once again claimed innocence, asking for an unconditional pardon for his past crimes, uh, saying that he wanted to die clear in the opinion of his fellow men. No action was ever taken, and on April 23rd, 1907, Alfred Packer passed away. He was buried the next day in Littleton, Colorado, in full Grand Army of the Republic rites. Uh, the Grand Army of the Republic, or the GAR, was a fraternal order of Civil War veterans, so I assume this was some sort of a military funeral. And yeah, man, that's about it for the life of Alfred Packer. Uh, the dude has been the subject of much speculation over the years, and to this day, nobody can say for sure if he was actually guilty of killing all those men. The site where the alleged murders happened has been dug up extensively. Bodies have been exhumed. I'll leave it up to you to look up more info on these findings, but as far as I'm concerned, 
nothing has really been discovered that says whether or not Alfred was telling the truth. None of it's been conclusive. Who knows, man? I sure don't. I'll tell you what I do not think. If Alfred did murder all five men, I don't believe that he led them into the wilderness with that intention, as he was accused of during that first trial. That's a little too far-fetched. If it happened, I think it was an insanity sort of thing. You know, they were all starving. I think Alfred probably snapped due to hunger, and he killed them all, and then he ate them. Even if he's telling the truth, and it was Bell that killed everybody, and then Alfred just killed Bell, it was still insanity. And Alfred obviously stole the money just because it was there. But yeah, I guess it is possible that things could have happened the way Alfred claimed there at the end. Maybe he did kill Bell out of self-defense. I don't know. I mean, we don't know much about Bell other than what Packer said, but we do know he was a well-respected man, as opposed to Packer, who fucking nobody respected, at least not at that point of his life. And furthermore, uh, not something that's touched on much, but Packer, as an old man, made these strange claims that he was a former scout, even saying that he scouted for Custer. And that's obviously not true. Still, though, as far as the murders go, there was no deathbed confession, and he did always maintain his innocence. Whatever his faults, he never wavered on that last confession. So what do you think? Was Alfred Packer guilty of murdering all five of his fellow miners or just a desperate man in a desperate situation surviving the only way he knew how? Hit me up at josh at wildwestextra.com and let me know. Or just head on over to my website, wildwestextra.com, and hit that contact button. I'm curious as to your thoughts on the matter. And if any of this sounds familiar, maybe you've seen the musical Cannibal, written by modern-day philosopher geniuses Trey Stone and Matt Barker. The very entertaining comedy is loosely based on Alfred Packer's life. The two saloon robin cowboys in question were William Evans, also known as Smith, and his buddy John Shaw. The pair beat feet out of the wigwam $300 richer and hopped a train bound for Flagstaff, dropping a few ill-gotten silver dollars in the process. Now, Evans and Shaw never did make it all the way to Flagstaff, instead opting to leave the train about 25 miles west of Winslow at the now ghost town of Canyon Diablo. And depending on who you talk to, Canyon Diablo, or the Devil's Canyon, was a pretty rough town back in the day. I guess with a main drag named Hell Street, it kind of had to be, right? Take into account its 14 saloons, 10 gambling joints, 4 brothels, 2 dance halls, and a partridge in a pear tree, and it most certainly lived up to its name. And yeah, I did add in the partridge for good measure, but I think you get my drift. But just in case you don't, the story goes that Canyon Diablo's first town marshal was sworn in at 3 p.m. and buried just a few hours later at 8 p.m. Five additional marshals followed, all killed in the line of duty, with the longest lasting all of just one month. So yeah, pretty rough town, but I reckon Hell Street was about as good a place as any for Shaw and Evans to make their final stand. Turns out Navajo County Sheriff Chet Hawk and his deputy, Pete Pemberton, along with town marshal Bob Giles, had discovered the silver dollars that the outlaws dropped when hopping that train. They headed straight for Flagstaff, but soon got word that the wanted men had been spotted hiding in some bushes outside of the Devil's Canyon. As such, Hawk and Pemberton arrived that evening, around about dusk, and began questioning local business owner Fred Voles. And just as Mr. Voles was in the process of confirming that, yeah, there were indeed a couple of shady newcomers in town, Sheriff Hawk notices the perps walking brazenly right out in the open. He and Pemberton rush out to confront the outlaws who waste no time fleeing down an alley. The lawmen pursue, and upon turning a corner, 
find themselves staring down the business end of a couple of six-shooters in the hands of Shaw and Evans. All four men immediately open up fire, emptying their guns just feet away from each other in a matter of seconds, and miraculously, neither lawman was wounded. The same could not be said for the dice robin duo. Evans caught a round in the leg and shoulder, but he still fared better than his partner Shaw, who lay splayed out in the dirt, deader in hell, and minus a good portion of his brain matter. Evans would later be sentenced to nine hard years at the territorial prison in Yuma, while Shaw was placed in a cheap pine box and unceremoniously buried right there in Canyon Diablo. And trust me when I say, this is not the end of the story. Much like last week's episode, things are about to take a turn for the strange. The following day, a bunch of cowboys from the Hash Knife outfit were drinking in the Wigwam Saloon, the scene of the initial robbery, and conversation naturally drifted to the recent holdup and the subsequent gun battle. And if you're not familiar, the Hash Knife Outfit, officially the Aztec Land and Cattle Company, had been operating there in Arizona since 1884, and at one point was something like the third largest cattle outfit in the entire country. They got the nickname Hash Knife on account of their brand, resembling a type of knife once used by chuck wagon cooks. And their hands soon garnered a reputation as the thievingest, fightingest bunch of cowboys who ever set a saddle. Now, while your average hash knife cowpoke was known to let the wolf howl on occasion, they, like all other cowboys, were mostly honest and hardworking. That said, there were a few bad apples, and some of the men employed by the Aztec Cattle Company had also been guilty of robbing trains, stagecoaches, and rustling cattle, as well as getting into their fair share of gunfights. In Hallbrook, the closest vestige of civilization to the hash knife headquarters, there were an astonishing 26 shooting deaths in the year 1886 alone, and that in a town whose population was just 250. Tom Pickett, one-time compadre of Billy the Kid, was a noted hashknife cowboy, as was Burt Mossman, who we just discussed in the recent episode on Ed Scarborough. Prior to Burt becoming the first captain of the Arizona Rangers, he was employed by the hashknife bunch to help put an end to the rustling, which he did by firing 52 of the 84 men on the payroll. Now, by 1905, things had calmed down a considerable amount, but as you'll soon hear, the hash knife still employed more than a few rough old cobs. Which brings us back to them cowhands at the wigwam, who were discussing the prior day's excitement when the barkeep let slip a shocking revelation. It seems that before robbing the dice game, Evans and Shaw had ordered themselves a couple of shots of whiskey. Drinks they never touched as they soon grew preoccupied with larceny a negligence near unthinkable to the hash-knife cowboys. I mean, sure, Evans could always imbibe after his stint in prison, but poor Shaw was destined to meet his maker with parched lips. Reckon this didn't sit too well with them cowpokes, and it weren't long before they got it into their heads to ride on over to Canyon Diablo, dig up John Shaw, and make damn sure he got that final drink. And so it were that somewhere between 15 and 20 inebriated hash-knife cowboys boarded a train bound for Hell Street, a bottle of the wigwam's finest rock gut in tow. The motley crew arrived at the Devil's Canyon just before first light and began banging on Fred Voltz's door, buggering him to lend over a few shovels. We stopped at the depot and had a few more drinks, and then we went and dug the grave open with shovels, Cowboy Lucian Cresswell later recalled. Now, Fred Voltz wasn't too happy about this new development. After all, it was he who, the day before, had identified the outlaws right before the shootout. And it was he who was tasked with burying Shaw afterwards. Now, not even 24 hours later, 
He had to sit back and watch as a bunch of wild-ass cowboys dug up a corpse just so they could give him a drink. Thinking he might as well make the most of it, Voles went ahead and grabbed his fancy Kodak box camera. After all, who knows? Maybe a few photos of Shaw's body would help him collect a reward for assisting the lawmen, or even possibly induce Shaw's next of kin to pay him, Voles, for a proper burial. So, as it were, Fred began snapping pictures as the cowpokes put them shovels to work digging up the coffin. All of them experiencing a shock of surprise when they popped open the lid and found Shaw's face frozen in a smile. A sight that caused at least one cowhand to shed a few tears. Undaunted and true to their word, they hauled Shaw up out of the casket, held his body upright, and began pouring whiskey through his smiling, clenched teeth. One cowboy by the name of Marley began singing Bringing in the Sheaves, at which point even more tears began to freely fall. A final prayer was given, I imagine a supplication of the sort that only a free-living cowboy could make merciful and understanding creator, and then Shaw was gingerly placed back in the coffin with an unfinished bottle of whiskey resting on his chest. The boys shoveled dirt back on top and solemnly made their journey back to Winslow, each of them no doubt wondering what their own burial would be like, and who, if anyone, would sing over them. Now, as far as I know, none of Shaw's family ever did come forward, and those photos would end up displayed in the Wigwam Saloon until it was torn down in the 1940s. I'm not sure who owns the originals, but you can find them online. Link in the show notes if you're curious, or just Google the shootout at Canyon Diablo. I normally don't suggest viewing photos of the deceased, but the expression on Shaw's face truly is uncanny. I mean, if you didn't know any better, you would swear he was still alive. It's like an Old West weekend at Bernie's only with one of the most contented smiles I have ever seen. It's almost unbelievable. Speaking of unbelievable, hopefully you know by now that I do strive for accuracy here on the Wild West Extravaganza, and it turns out that maybe Canyon Diablo wasn't quite as wild as I portrayed it to be earlier. Don't get me wrong, the gunfight I just described definitely occurred, as did the unearthing of John Shaw for that last drink. All of that was true. The other stories, though, the ones talking about the various town marshals killed in the line of duty and the abundance of saloons and the other denizens of vice, well, those just might have been the imaginative musings of a fiction author by the name of Gladwell Richardson. Why he felt the need to embellish, I do not know, as the true story of Canyon Diablo is absolutely wild, in my opinion at least. There may or may not have been a succession of town marshals killed, and Canyon Diablo may or may not have been lined up and down with whorehouses and gambling joints. And there may not have been a bunch of gunfights in the streets, as people like to believe, but there was at least one deadly gunfight there, and it did result in one of the craziest stories I've ever heard. The final toast of a down-and-out cowpoke gone wrong by the name of John Shaw. You may be interested to learn that just seven months after the gunfight, Deputy Pemberton was in the Wigwam Saloon, the same establishment where this whole damn thing got started, and drinking with Winslow Town Marshal Bob Giles, the feller who had previously helped him find them silver dollars by the train station. The two lawmen got into an argument about what I do not know, but it resulted in Pemberton drunkenly and fatally shooting Marshal Giles. Pemberton was found guilty and sentenced to 25 years at the prison over in Yuma, the same one where William Evans, the man who he had shot and helped capture over at Canyon Diablo, was also doing time. No word on how they got along behind bars, but I gotta assume it made for some awkward conversations in the prison yard. 
Unfortunately, I don't know what became of either man later in life. Pemberton did not end up serving anywhere near his full sentence. He got a pardon after just a few years, and all Evans had to do was less than a decade, so I can only assume they both breathed air as free men once more. Whether or not they ever went back to the Devil's Canyon for a reunion is anyone's guess. All right, that's about all I've got this week. Please head on over to wildwestextra.com for more true tales from the wild and woolly west. While you're there, hit that contact button. Let me know what's on your mind. And try not to rob any dice games, okay? It won't end well. At best, you'll end up behind bars walking with a damn limp like Evans. At worst, a bunch of damn drunks are just going to dig your ass up and toss a bunch of cheap booze down your gullet. On second thought, that doesn't sound too bad. All right, till next week, adios.